Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother Dagan, Brandt's best friend, Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Donnie. <laughs> Phone drinking, dude. <laughs> it's good to see you. I'm here with you in your house, your lovely house. In, in my the, abode. In your abode. In, in the, my adobe. In your adobe, yes. It's <laughs> weird. We just, just kind of, well, if you move around the D and the B, right? It would be. Yeah, we just, yeah, we just, yeah, just, just flip them. Just slop them. Uh, we're here in the Philly suburbs recording wave nine of Knockback. Remember, Knockback is our retro nostalgia podcast I do every week with my brother. You can support us on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access. If you want to be a freeloader, we appreciate you as well. Tell your friends and family about our show. Enjoy it. Leave nice reviews and be good to each other. You better enjoy it. You Kyle, better. Did you notice what's going on here? I started to shave. Well, and by shave, I mean I took my barber scissors and started to cut my beard. I couldn't freaking stand it anymore. Yeah, I, I actually didn't you see, notice you get that. A little taste of what just the mustache is going to look. Yeah, like. look at it's, go, it's going down, my friend. You got it. You should just keep the mustache. Oh, I'm keeping the mustache. Oh, that that would be. I don't oh, know if I've ever seen you with just a mustache. Yeah, Helene says I look like Freddie Mercury. With the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> just the mustache. And she doesn't mean it as a compliment. She doesn't. Oh, that's too I think bad. he was a beautiful man. Yeah, he's definitely a very good looking man. I think. Very uh, distinct looking man, let's say. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm rocking it. Well, you look great with uh, the uh, haggard with old beard. beard. Yeah, you <laughs> look, take it, look like the, the buzzer ran out of uh, like power or something <laughs> like that. The battery ran out. You had to, you had to run out of the house. Uh, Dagan, today's episode of Knockback is all about The Big Lebowski, the 1998 cult classic film. One of our favorite comedies of all time. A movie actually we have a lot of shared memories of. And I'm surprised, much like many of the topics we've been doing recently, that it took us this long to get to this movie. But it's a fantastic movie, a fine movie. And I'm really excited to talk about it with everyone today. Very this excited. movie is a very, very, very fine movie. What is that? Uh, it's a, it's, this house is a very, very fine <laughs> you're, your, you're out of your mind. That was terrible. That was really bad. That, that was, was one of the really worst bad. ones. Keep it. We're going to keep it. We're not editing it. <laughs> I don't edit the show anymore anyway, so whatever Dustin wants to do is whatever. fine. You just leave it in, you he's leave it out. He's totally in control now. Whatever. Yeah, he's totally in control. I don't, I'm not listening to them either, so it's like, I don't know what the what? hell is going on. No, I don't listen to them. Um, you listen to them still, right? I try to listen to them. Yeah, every one of them. Well, how do you feel? that? that how do you think they're going? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're brilliant. They are. They are brilliant. Just brilliant. They are brilliant. I think every one of them is a hit, personally. Dagan, before we get into The Big Lebowski, let's mm -hmm. do our opening segment. Okay. Explain it to the audience, and we'll go from there. This is a little opening segment we like to call, Do You Feel Lucky Punk? Colin likes to call it the Riverboat. What do you call it? It's the, the Riverboat, riverboat casino. casino. 
<laughs> so whichever one you prefer playing a little craps here and there if you want to call it the cool title or Collins title yeah whatever you know it's if you want to be like yeah the cool title or the weirdo <laughs> 1890s southern gentleman title then yeah it's there's up to something you. charming about that I oh, guess oh sure yeah absolutely so you know what guys this is just nothing more charming than post-civil war south <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's terrible nothing more charming than, than the post-reconstruction south I'll you tell know, you that makes me think because those boats are really big how deep was the how deep was the river to accommodate a boat like that? I think the Mississippi River is pretty deep. Is it? Well, it was a main causeway, a waterway between like it Ship was really important. Yeah. During the Civil War, we took New Orleans almost immediately from the Confederacy because it was so essential for them to get supplies up and down the river. So, yeah, really important cause. And, and so I assume it's quite deep because it accommodated all sorts of different ships all the way back to the French occupation, of course, of that territory, the Amazing. Louisiana Territory, as it was oh. once referred before Thomas Jefferson I purchased like it from Napoleon. Indeed. Is that right? Is yeah. that how it went down? Mm -hmm. oh, Napoleon what? was fighting the British and they were running out of money. So they sold penny, basically pennies on the dollar. All of the Louisiana purchase to Thomas Jefferson. I think we paid something like eleven million dollars or something in heinous like that for it Whoa. at the time, which was a lot of money. But right. But not so still, much anymore. Yeah, shit. it was like it was like one and a half cents per acre or something like that. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? That's amazing. And a lot of people were totally against it because they didn't think Thomas Jefferson had Thomas Jefferson was the third president and they didn't think that they had. There was no constitutional right for him to even do that. So some people were upset that he bought the land. Some people didn't want it. They didn't think the United States should be that much bigger than it was. Wow. And all that kind of stuff. And that just continued all the way on until we bought Alaska from the Russians, which they called Seward's Folly, okay. named after the uh, secretary of state that organized the purchase from Russia from, I think, Tsar Alexander III, if I remember correctly. Okay. And uh, and then we found a bunch of oil and gold there and everyone shut the fuck up. That's amazing. So, yeah, there was like, no, it's all right. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, it's fine. Good idea. Everything's great. <laughs> Can you imagine the Russians when they found out that they just no, sold this piece of land? That's the first thing I was thinking when he said that. Yeah, just plenty of gold, plenty of oil. Thanks a lot. Surrender all this treasure. Anyway, the Riverboat Casino. Let's Riverboat do it. Casino. So this is just based on my little fascination. I have a little, uh, I'm, I'm hung up on the idea of luck. I, I'm really fascinated, quite fascinated by it. You know, how it comes and goes and how some of us haven't, some of us don't. Some it just goes and goes for me. And some days we don't. Yeah. Like, you know, most days for me. <laughs> well, Chronic so far on, in this game. I am in a slump right now. You're in a little bit of a slump yeah. so far. We'll see how it turns. So Collins is going to do a couple of di four different tests of his luck. He's got the die. He's got the cards. He's got the coin. And then, oh, I forgot to give you the piece of paper with the number on it. So we'll do that, too. I want you to write the number as a Roman numeral. Okay. Even I, that. I want to see if you know what the Roman numeral is for 40. For 40. Okay. <laughs> I can just write whatever you want. Okay. Wait, then you'll guess it. It's a you joke. You almost had me there. You almost had me there, my friend. Okay, I'm going to write a Roman numeral, though. My friend. My friend. You almost had me, my friend. <laughs> All right. So. All right. Diggins written it on a post-it. Which he's folding carefully, folding probably a little too much. I don't want you to see through he's it. He's folding it. Okay. To the you point where it, the paper friend. cannot be folded again. Can you reach? Yep. Thank you. All right. All right. So we'll start with the highest okay, so percentage start. first. Actually, you know what? Let's yeah. go in the reverse order this time and see if we can shake things up a little bit. Okay. I'll start with the number. What is the, uh, well, you, all right. So what is the odd? What are the odds on the paper? One in three. Oh, okay. So the odds of the cards would be the worst. You added another card to this. Is that what you did? So what I did was in the in the cards, there's four suits, but three of each. Oh, okay. So now there's 12. So essentially, instead of... right. All right. So I'm going to start with the cards. I'm going to call it a heart. Heart. Colin's guessing that he's going to draw a heart. Heart. He gets the heart. heart. Ten you, of hearts. You're one for one. All right. Perfect so far, my friend. So the next up would be. Next one would be. Die. 
I will use the big die. Oh, you're going with the big one. I'll go with the big die. Khan's got like the eight inch by eight inch foam die. Okay. It's I'm, blue. I'm going to call it four. Four, he says. Oh. Oh, six. It came out to be six. It's six. It almost landed on four, I think, until it hit the surge protector over there. It almost shut the power off of the whole recording. Well, we have batteries in there, so it's no big deal. Oh, okay, They'll keep good, going. Good, I'm good. always prepared. You understand? I'm always prepared. I'm, oh, who is that? Inspector Gadget who said that? I'm always, is that what he says? I'm I don't always, know. I don't know what he said. I don't think he said anything useful. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> you said one of three, so it's one, two, or three in the on the piece of paper? No, so it's a one of three chance. It is six, seven, eight. Six, seven, eight. The number is six. Let's see. It is Roman numeral VI. Oh, no, Roman numeral, oh, seven. Roman numeral it's VII. Seven. It's seven. It was a little too small for me to say. All right, so seven. So a little bit off there. All right. Couldn't actually be much more closer or off because there's only three options. You're one for three right now. Yeah. All right. So okay. at least we'll, we'll see if we can bet 500 with the coin flip. I'm going to, again, flip it on the turf just like an NFL referee. We're All not right. going to touch it. Call it in the air, my friend. Tails. Heads. Heads. All right. So one, of, one for four. Not, that's about it. You know, not terrible. Not terrible. If I were a baseball player, I'd be perfectly happy. You're on that. the up and up because you're coming off of uh, 0 for 4. O for, two back-to-back 0 for 4. Two back to, that's right. On the back of a 3 for 4 or a 4 for 4 performance, I think. Yeah, you had, a, you had a 3 for 4 on the first one. Yeah, so I am cumulatively, let's see, 4 for, so 4 for 16. Yes. So batting 250 right now, it's not terrible. Not too, not too bad. Not All too right. Bad. Well, we'll see if we can do better on the Riverboat Casino, the Mississippi Riverboat Casino, the <laughs> post-reconstruction, really uplifting Southern... <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of my mind this fucking wave. I have no idea why. All right. Dig the Big Lebowski. All right. Let's do it. This movie came out to theaters March 6th, 1998. I was in eighth grade. It was made on a $15 million budget. It grossed $46.2 million at the box office. Pretty modest, actually, considering how much people love this movie now. It was directed, produced, and written by the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan. Of course, they are most famous for the great 80s movie Raising Arizona, Fargo, probably most famously, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, True Grit. Etc. 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 And the interesting thing about this movie that I was surprised by, but very surprised, very pleasantly surprised by Dangan, yeah, is that in 2014 the Library of Congress inducted this movie into the Library of Congress. Yes, I read that for a permanent. Uh, let's say, what, what would you say? A permanent inclusion. Yeah, permanent inclusion. I guess you know. Yeah, I guess that's what amongst you call the it. great films. Right. Exactly. Right. And so that's a big honor for this cult movie. It's Huge. probably one of the smaller movies in that catalog. You would assume. I think they only let a few in every year. Is that so, right? I'd like to I think so. more about that, actually. Yeah, it's yeah, that's like cool. It's like to just pre preserve and protect, I guess, these films, right? These great American films. So, yeah, Big Lebowski, 1998. Now, we have a connection, Dagan, for this movie because I don't think I saw it probably until 99, 2000, somewhere in there. Yeah. So a couple of years after it was in the theaters and you introduced me to it. So we'll really start by you talking about how you found it and then how we found it together. We'll go over the characters, the plot, all of that. Okay. But before we do that, we do have some inquiries from the audience. Oh, Remember, I can't wait to hear if this. you support us on patreon.com slash Collins last stand, we'll let you know the topics of every wave early. You submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. They help fuel everything we do here on knockback inquiries for the intro. Leo Maniscalci wrote into us. He said, this Cohen's brother masterpiece is my favorite comedy of all time by a mile. I'm a film school graduate, and even in classes discussing comedy, no one would bring up this film as one of the all-time greats, but I feel it goes down in history as one of them. The first time I saw it, I didn't really get it. 
it's one of those rare comedies that get better with every time you watch it. And you begin to peel off a layer of subtext with each viewing. I totally agree, I with, agree that. with that. I currently program retro films for a, rep a repertory theater in New York and try to show it at least once every few months to expose younger moviegoers and create new fans. Very cool. They just don't make deep and weirdly complex comedies of this caliber anymore. I don't presume to know enough about film to know if that's true or not, but I will take your advice on that, Leo. By the way. I don't have the greatest taste or the greatest film taste in comedies because I really love like a bunch of really zany shit. We were talking recently about Bad Grandpa, whatever, Dirty, whatever the one is with Robert De Niro. It's either Bert yeah, or Dirty. That's, that's, uh, that's Dirty Grandpa. Dirty Grandpa, yeah. And uh, like, which I think is one of the funniest movies I've seen in the last five years. And I don't know that that's like, you know, up there with the Big Lebowski in terms of, I don't think that's going to be in the Library of Congress anytime soon. <laughs> It'd be amazing if it, did, if it was that August McFarlane wrote into us. That's a great name. Great name. He said, I love this movie and I can go on and on about it, but I instead want to offer a personal anecdote. Okay. This movie came out not long after I first got my driver's license and a car. I lied about my age to buy a ticket, then sat in the very back row of the theater and watched it alone. I didn't trust my underage attempt would work with others. It's both the only movie I have ever watched in theaters alone and the only movie I can quote entire scenes of when wow. he says world of pain in quotes. By the way, Colin and Dagan, your show is simply awesome. And I want to say thank you for your many efforts. Thank you very much for saying. Thank so. you very much, August. Uh, very it's appreciated. Around the same time, actually, I would imagine that this was probably like really close to the release of Big Lebowski. I did something similar in early 1998 by going into a movie I wasn't supposed to be into, which was something about Mary and watching it by myself. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That movie? Yeah. Dad went and saw something and I went and saw something. Very funny movie also. Really, really funny. I only saw that movie. You know, what? here's an anecdote about something about Mary. I've only seen that once. Helene and I saw that in a the theater together and I've only ever seen it once. Is that strange? Usually a comedy you watch more than once. Just that's true. Just pops up on cable. Right. So on and so forth. That's that's interesting. I'd like to see that movie again. But you maybe had, it would be less funny if I saw it again. It could be. You, you had an anecdote of my anecdote, which was great. It's a meta anecdote. <laughs> Ryan R. Kittredge wrote into us and said, one of the most quotable movies of my high school and the sole reason three of my friends and I went to a CCR or clearance. What is it? What is CCR? The band? Clarence, revival. Clarence, Clarence Clearwater Revival. Clearwater Revival. Right. The truly one of the greats in the comedy genre. Quote, Lord, you can imagine where it goes from here. He fixes the cable. <laughs> <laughs> That's good pull. Great pull. And finally, before we, we have more, but we'll leave it here for now with the audience. Dagan, Simon Corey wrote into us and said, very simple, Colin and Dagan. Do you know what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass? <laughs> I knew that was coming. That had to be coming. Oh, that, that scene is just... Oh, well, the whole movie. It's, it's, it's excellent. Where so do you I, even I, start? Yeah, um, so I'm curious. Well, let's start with how you discovered it because, again, okay. you introduced me to it when I was in high school. So, yeah, talk to me about your journey with The Big Lebowski. Okay, so when I moved up to Connecticut to take my first job in animation right after I graduated from, from college in the summer of 98, I moved in late September of 98. I moved to Connecticut, and I met a whole group of new friends up there. And I've met a really good friend of mine that Colin knows, my friend Dan, who is a brilliant, actually, brilliant comic strip artist we worked at the animation studio together and became fast friends with dan and dan was a really interesting dude because i was telling colin this earlier he was a film buff and he was the first person i ever knew who had a really extensive dvd collection in the late 90s already this was when people were still literally buying vhs and he had probably he had at least 200 dvds in 1998 and he's the one who introduced me to The Big Lebowski. So it wasn't in 98. It was probably in 90. It's probably the spring of 99. I used to go over his apartment a lot. Our apartments were really close together. We used to drive to each other's places all the time. We were, with, we were within a mile of each other, especially on the weekends. And I popped over one night and he's like, I'm going to show you this movie. And he, sh he put in The Big Lebowski and I watched it. Dude, I was enamored. We were talking about this. I was enamored with this movie 
to the point where I never remember thinking to the degree I, I did with this movie, where, what the hell, how did I miss this? This movie is fantastic. I was immediately, my eyes were just fixed on the movie and I enjoyed it from beginning to the end. I don't think I said a word. I think we just sat through it without saying anything. It was just complete, utter enjoyment. And I've probably seen this movie, I've probably seen this movie 20 or 30 times. And it is odd that we took this long to talk about. It's one of those things because this is probably easily in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. You know how you have you have your top 10 list and sometimes you forget about things? It's a shame to ever overlook this movie because this movie, for me, it this movie has utter rewatchability. It never, ever gets tired and it never, ever gets boring. It's just, it's hilarious. It's engaging. The characters are amazing. The dialogue is amazing. The writing is amazing. It's just, it's just a perfect movie. For me, I, I can't think of, and it's funny, I like other comedies. I am actually in love with some other comedy movies. I really love Wes Anderson's movies a lot. Starting with Bottle Rocket and pretty much his whole cat, you know, Ten and Bounds. Yeah, Bottle Rocket's awesome. You know, I'm really Applejack. Really, <laughs> we got to do a Bottle Rocket. Yeah, episode. definitely. That's that another one of our so movies. Overlooked. That's another one of a movie we we got we have a bond over. I yeah, think. we really do. Yeah, especially that movie. You know, Rushmore. I love his catalog of movies. I love movies like Superbad. I love some some classic, more classic comedies. But this movie is. I don't love any comedy more than I love this movie. This movie is just through and through. Just just. I can't say enough things about it. I mean, and and what movie is maybe with the exception of Goodfellas? What movie is more quotable than this movie? It is. It's one of the great quotable movies, and it's funny because I don't remember. I was a little younger, obviously, but I don't remember being aware of this movie until you showed it to me. Either it's funny that it kind of just crept into consciousness over time, like the American consciousness and the Western consciousness over time. It definitely wasn't a thing. Until I, I remember going to college and this movie was kind of even still mysterious to people. Yeah. So I'm kind of proud that considering, you know, like I said, I want to consult the the numbers here. Forty six point two million dollars at the box office is not that's not bad. I mean, even today, that's not terrible. But for a 15 million dollar budget. But it was one of those obscure movies. And uh, I'm kind of proud that we were we kind of gleaned onto it pretty early, even by the yeah, fandoms kind of definitely uh, standard. And I agree with you. It is one of the great comedies. It's for me. It's up there with like Meet the Parents, Forty Year Old Virgin. Oh, it's another great one. You, you know, Happy Gilmore. A lot, a lot of these great comedies that I love, and obviously like Naked Gun and and, and really good stuff that that I really take a liking to. Airplane, it's the stuff I enjoy. I think this is probably out of everything that I've seen comedy wise, the most sophisticated comedy. Which is really funny because it's crude. It's really crude and. It's a lot of like F-bombs and stuff. I was reading some contemporary reviews at the time and people were really criticizing. Actually, it's incredibly heavy use of profanity and all yeah. that. So I think that when you complain about it like that, I don't think you really understand it. And I don't know that anyone really understands this movie the very first time they see it. It was really a pleasure last week when I was preparing for our wave to sit down and watch it for probably the first time in, in some time, maybe even the first time all the way through since I lived in California. And I've seen the movie a bajillion times, too, but not probably in the last 10 years and I was dying watching it and I I texted you I think I was like this movie you did yeah I was like this movie is just infinitely quotable it, it is funny constantly it's constantly funny and I was dying like it's it reminds me of Seinfeld in the sense that you know what's coming you know the joke or like what the the funny moment is but you and you you can even probably say it out loud but it is still as funny as the very first time you saw it and definitely I'm actually working my way through Seinfeld again, like in order. I've never actually watched Seinfeld in order ever because it was always in our day on syndication. So you just watch whatever they put on. Whatever but, was on. And it's another one of those things where I'm like, man, this is actually funnier than I even remember it sometimes. And I felt the same way about the Big Lebowski 
where I was like, this is actually much more clever than I even gave it credit for. I don't think I was sophisticated enough myself as a teen or 20 something to know how good this is and how many times you probably have to watch it to really understand the humor and understand the the really com- the complexity of the writing and apparently how very authoritarian the Cohen brothers are in the way that their scripts are, are read. There is no improv. It's unbelievable when you think about that from a writing perspective that they actually this was all actually on on the paper. Right. You would think that they were just kind of ad living sometimes, but apparently not. Apparently not. <laughs> So it's true. It's amazing. So for people that don't know, and I really encourage, as we always do when we do an episode of Knockback, I, I I get confused sometimes why people listen to this show when they have not seen or played or whatever the subject material. Yeah. So we always recommend that no matter what we're talking about, as long as it's one of those things and it's not like a storytelling episode, which we sometimes do. So I recommend that everyone shut this off right now if you have not watched it yet, just because we're going to spoil it, obviously, and talk about it. And you really should go enjoy it for yourself. Do you think before this we talk mo- about I'm it. thinking about it now. Do you think this movie really can be spoiled? Like, uh, think yeah. about it from a bot. Like when you, we talk about the box office and how it had a very modest take at the box office. I could imagine this movie being very hard to summarize, cut a trailer for. In fact, I've never seen a trailer for this movie. Yeah, like, I don't think I've, I have either. It's probably on the DVD mean? or whatever. Very hard movie to describe. Even I could see watching a trailer being, what the hell is that supposed to be? You know, this is the type of movie that you have to actually see. But I'm not really sure. Now, I'm not saying ruin it for yourself by listening to the show first. I'm just saying it's not I don't know if it's a type of movie that you could really ruin well, that way and spoil hmm. that. Way. What do you think? Well, I think that that might be inherently true for almost anything, because you can explain like we explained the book, The Road, and we explain all these other things. And you really don't get the full experience without having experienced it for yourself, obviously. So I hear what you're saying, but I think. I think going in blind and not even understanding what the movie is about or who's in it and all that kind of stuff is part of the pleasure of watching the movie. Yeah. And I must be honest with you, I don't remember the plot being so complex when I watched it when I was a kid, too. I don't know that I really paid a great deal of attention to what it was actually about. I hear what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like it's about double and triple and quadruple crossing, basically. And I don't know that I was in on that as much as I probably should have been. And I I imagine that's probably a lot of people's experience watching. It It is actually kind of, yeah, it's kind of sneaky complex. Because it's so outrageous that you're really so focused on the beat by beat, like insanity in the movie (laughs) that you're not really paying much. And the actors who are just universally excellent. Oh my God, everybody is a a genius in this. But it's important to note that at $46.2 million box office draw in 1998, this was on the back of Fargo, which was a was probably still the Coen Brothers' most critically acclaimed movie. I don't know if it's the biggest box office draw. That might be True Grit or even Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But mm. they had a lot of... Res- mm, that was a big one, too. They yeah. had a lot of respect coming into The Big Lebowski. So you would actually have thought that more people went. So I actually think this was probably considered a weak movie by the standards of the day. And I don't think the Coen Brothers even care a great deal about this movie, which is really interesting when you read about it. I read something where they said one of them said something along the lines of like, we don't care about it as much as everyone else does. Like basically, really? that was, yeah, like that they don't really get why everyone loves it so much. Oh, that's interesting. And I think that's such bullshit. Personally, I think that's like such a pretentious and stupid thing to say, if I'm being honest, because I don't know how you I'm I understand you being to like, we're that. too cool to even understand why you like our film. And it's wow, like, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm really like, all right, uh, if you say so. Wow. I watched the making of, a, a really good making of that. I didn't even know existed. And they didn't seem to have that attitude. So that's interesting. I wonder which which sentiment of theirs came because they are known to be a little bit, you know, I don't know if it's Joel or Ethan, but one's one's a little bit more like material is a little more arrogant. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you can go. I don't know which one of them was. I probably should have wrote that down, but. 
it's considered a cult classic today, but this really this movie probably could have fallen on, on the wayside and been become this obscure, even deeper cult classic. I think the Internet had a lot to do with this proliferation and also the DVD era spawning, like you said, around this time. DVDs were just so much more affordable and accessible after a while, as opposed to a VHS tape. I remember going into Best Buy in like 2002, 2003 during the PS2 era when everyone was playing DVDs and you'd buy I could buy like a 10 DVDs for like. 80 bucks or something. Yeah, so yeah, it was like a totally accessible way to watch these movies. And I think that that really helped its proliferation. People shared it and talked about it on message boards it or whatever so the case nice, might be that that era. But the movie digging for those out there that don't know is basically about a guy named the dude, Jeffrey Lebowski. He's played by Jeff Bridges. And it's about basically this. He's like kind of a low life in some ways. Very lovable flower child, you know, kind of guy, but he doesn't have a job and he doesn't really care about anything. And he's kind of living paycheck to paycheck or whatever he's living by. And it's basically about how he gets caught up in this, this episode because he shares the name Jeffrey Lebowski with a famous rich Jeffrey Lebowski, who's married to this, you know, 20 something year old girl who's on the run and, and it think, they think she's kidnapped and they're trying to pay her off. So that's basically what the movie's about, like at its, at its core and actually saying that maybe you're right. Dig, maybe it is like really hard to spoil it because it is, that is what the movie's about, but it's, then you kind of go through the trials and tribulations with them. Yeah, it's very unique. This movie is like no other movie. And the cast is just ph- phenomenal. Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, uh, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, my beloved Tara Reid, John Turturro, <laughs> Sam Elliott. There's a lot of great people. It's a really solid cast. And I guess I just didn't realize that the Coen brothers had so much respect at that time that they basically wrote these parts for these actors, with the exception of, I think, Jeff Bridges, and were, were able to attract some really marquee talent. And I think that they had intended on making this before Fargo, but they didn't. And so it gave them more time, I guess, to get that star power from the mid 90s. Yeah, they had to wait, apparently, for Jeff Bridges and John Goodman. John Goodman was doing Roseanne. Jeff Bridges was doing something else. But they had to wait for those two. Did you hear who they originally wanted for the role of the dude? Like I, who they originally considered? This I think is I was crazy. Yeah, who was it? Mel Gibson. <laughs> oh, I don't think I even saw that. That is insane. Yeah, that's wild. Can you imagine this movie with Mel Gibson? I love Mel Gibson actually, but yeah, I no, I, I, don't... Char- I think Mel Gibson's awesome. And I think he's very charismatic, but Jeff Bridges brings something different. I, I completely agree. different brand. I agree. It know? would be interesting though, like if we didn't know any better, would this movie? Would Mel Gibson be like the dude, and that would would that be funny? Right. And then we'd be saying, can you imagine Jeff Bridges in that role? Right, right. One exactly. Of those things, it know? would be interesting. Like I, Mel Gibson obviously really lost his reputation with his uh, rampant anti-Semitism. He's, he's kind of coming back, though. He made a comeback, I think, a couple of years ago. right? Yeah, with the, he was granted a reprieve. Of yeah, sorts. with the, with, the, with his director with, a you know, well, he it wasn't his directorial debut because he directed movies before his uh, his anti-Semitic. Yes, rant. he did. Let's go character by character. I really think that that's probably the most effective that way for us good. to talk about yeah, uh, talk, talk about this. It's worth noting that even though the film, by the way, came out in 1998, it takes place in 1991. So you can look at it through that lens, should you care to. But it's it's not contemporary to the time it came out, if that makes any sense to the audience. Jeff Bridges, like I said, plays Jeffrey Lebowski, the dude, uh, six times nominated Academy Award uh, actor and a lot of shit. Again, plays kind of a lazy, unemployed hippie in Los Angeles, and he's obsessed with bowling, and that's basically what his life and his friends' lives all revolve around. They talk to me a little bit about the dude who, you know, in an iconic role like this, it's just he is immortal in, in my mind as one of the great, not only comedic characters in film history, but like one of the most memorable characters of any sort. And he's so lovable. And he even, really is. He's not a bad person. He's just he's just lazy and kind of content. 
And I, I really enjoy him. So talk to me a little bit about Jeffrey Lebowski, the dude. So you know what I love the most about this character, Kyle? We're, when we're introduced to him, again, spoiler alert, guys, go watch. Then come back and listen to us to gush about this movie. But the first, you know, we're initially introduced to the dude in the first few minutes of the film. He's buying. He's in his bathrobe and slippers in the supermarket late at night. And he's buying milk at the checkout and he's writing a check for it. And of course we learn that the milk becomes his marquee drink. He's constantly making and drinking white Russian cocktails throughout the, throughout the film. And yeah, he's the dude is just sort of, you know, the, the, the best way to put it, I think is just, he's sort of an aging burnout, like an aging pothead living in Southern California who becomes embroiled in this whole crazy case of mistaken identity basically and who the story eventually centers around but yeah he's sort of this you know aging slacker you content to just be cruising through his life with his friends and his bowling and his white russians and not paying his rent on time and obviously you know a complete underachiever <laughs> it's the 10th of the month dude far, oh, far out, out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all can we just talk about that marty the landlord that yeah. guy's amazing he's uh he's sort of this meek you know mild-mannered dude timid dude and then it turns out he's uh he's like a he does avant-garde dance yeah. like the avant-garde theater <laughs> it's uh, it's so good. every character every character even the secondary characters like marty are so great but that yeah so that's how i would summarize dude and what makes him you know of course we got to get to one of my favorite characters next walter what makes it so interesting is not just the dude on his own as a character, but his relationship with his best friend, Walter, and how different those two characters are. So tell us about Walter. Yeah, so Walter, played by John Goodman, is, is I would say, almost as iconic in some ways as the dude to oh, a lot absolutely. of people that enjoy the film. And John Goodman is just, I absolutely adore John Goodman. I just want to be really clear about that. He's very I think, appealing. I think there's something, even with when Roseanne came back, I was most excited I love Roseanne. I mean, that's I've loved Roseanne for a long time. Dana, our sister, was the one that really got me into Roseanne when I was a kid. I, that is one of the most clever sh comedies of the last 30 years. And I was so disappointed. It's underrated. I was so disappointed with what happened with Roseanne. I think just as an aside, I think she was kind of what she said was inappropriate. But I think that she kind of was thrown a little bit under the bus because of her Trump support and stuff like that. And yeah, I'm not so sure she meant what she said in a racist what, way. I don't even remember what she said. She said something along the lines. Valerie Jarrett was who she was talking about, who was one of Barack Obama's like closest confidants and advisors. OK, um, I think she's half black, but she said something. She tweeted out something like Valerie Jarrett is like a mixture between something and Planet of the Apes, which is obviously. Oh. But she was basically saying like she was basically saying like, well, what she I should say what she claims yeah. on Rogan and stuff like that when I listened to her on there was. She didn't know she was black and she thinks she just looks like one of the apes from Planet of the Apes. And oh, that was wow. the joke. You she know? went on Rogan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think maybe even twice since it happened. Okay. And obviously she's not involved in in the show anymore. Now it's called The Connors. And I don't even know if it's going to exist anymore after that. But but how was John Goodman on the but show? John, but, but yeah, the point I was making was that when the show came back, I was so excited because I'm such a huge Roseanne fan. I find that show authentically endearing and really funny and well-written. But I was most excited to see John Goodman again and in that role because I found him to be so essential to the, to the comedy and it's just interesting watching him kind of move between roles, also serious roles sometimes in which he's like really quite adept. I actually think John Goodman, again, not being a film buff, not being super learned in, in, in things, all things cinematography uh, and things of this nature. 
he's probably in my mind one of the most underrated actors because I don't feel like anyone talks about him. That yeah, it's a good point. And he's, he's got great, a great range. So Walter in the in and his and I, I wrote this down because I wanted to be clear. It's Walter Sobchak, yeah. S-O-B-C-H-A-K. <laughs> and he is basically what you what appears to be a militant Vietnam veteran. You find out that he probably or definitely wasn't even ever in Vietnam uh, later on. Uh, but he's basically the source, actually, of the dude's misfortune, ultimately, in the movie. If things if he wasn't involved and didn't constantly escalate the situation that the dude finds himself in, the dude might have been able to escape from this situation. It might have even actually made some scratch off of the situation as well, because ultimately and we'll talk about Tara Reid's character, Bunny, in a little while. But she's kidnapped in quotes. And the dude is basically the bag man ends up being the bag man to kind of deliver the money to the people who apparently kidnapped her. These nihilists and all this crazy shit. One of them is flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so Walter is just constantly escalating the situation on a constant basis. And I love him because he's just so completely unaware of what he is doing and why he is responsible for what is going on. And it really is yin and yang. It's many friendships are built on this fun, uh, on this fundamental foundation. Even Ramon and I are kind, are kind of yin and yang in a way where it's it's just I don't know that friendships spawn and friendships thrive when you're so similar to the person who you're best friends with or who you're yeah. friends with. Your best friend is the same way. You and PJ are nothing alike at all. Really. No, you have, very different. You share some commonalities just like Ramon and I share commonalities with music and all that kind of stuff. But we're actually, we're, we're very different people. And that was the same with Mike Pope and that was the same with others. So I really enjoy John Goodman's performance here. And and, and the yin and yang kind of inter- interchange between Jeff Bridges and John Goodman is, is really at the heart of the comedy in the movie. Absolutely. It's a big part of it. So we have to talk about Donnie Karabatsis as well, who's Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Steve Buscemi is another amazing character actor and just just such a I, I, I find him so warm in his roles often, maybe not in like Fargo and stuff like that. But in a lot of roles, like I just I'm like, I like Steve Buscemi. He seems like a guy I'd like to have a beer with or something. Yeah, he's very likable. But he plays Donnie, like I said, and he's kind of this kind hearted but clueless guy who is basically unaware that he is always the butt of this of this kind of mean spirited ridicule from from Walter. Yeah. And it's kind of the third wheel in this in this triangular friendship that's going on. And they're all on the same bowling team and whatnot. So talk to me a little bit, Dig, about about Donnie. Yeah, he's the, sort of the the third member of this f- trio, this friendship trio or this bowling team trio. And he does have this really contentious, one sided contentious relationship with Walter. Walter, he's sort of, you know, Walter really picks on him. And that's a big part of the comedy, especially in the first half of the film, is Walter just ceaselessly picking on this man. And very meek and very timid, but, you know, very sweet. Steve Buscemi plays him so really in an understated way, which is great because Walter is such a strong personality. He's actually quite manic. So to have Donnie as like a foil to that is really a nice compliment. What's wrong with Walter, dude? <laughs> and he always ha- he's always coming from, you know he's he's very earnest Donnie and he's always coming from a place of actually sincerity but Walter's just ready to jump on him at every at any given moment you know he's he's hilarious and you know also one thing that you have to say about Steve Buscemi too not only in this role but a lot of the roles he plays there's a physicality that he brings to a role and a look because of his very unique look and his very unique style, he has a very unique aesthetic. He has a very expressive face. And it really, he really, that really plays well into this character. He's very well cast. And they wrote, like you said already, they, the Coen brothers wrote a lot of these parts for these characters. 
and they wrote the part of Donnie for Steve Buscemi. And that that it makes total sense. No one else could play this part like this. You know, it's tailor made for him. Just hilarious. It's it's awesome, too, because (laughs) I guess unlike some of the other characters in in the film, because the dude himself is based on this guy, kind of a, a, a fusion of this guy named Jeff Dowd, who's this kind of small time producer in Hollywood. I think he's still bouncing around and he was basically this hippie dude that the Coen brothers were familiar with. And they basically wrote this this part kind of making fun of this Jeff Dowd guy. Also, this guy named Peter Excellent was like another inspiration. That's where like the rug and the shitty apartment and everything comes from because the rug ties the room together. And I stuff. Apparently he was real. Yeah, apparently that quote, the, the, the rug really tied the room together comes from this guy, <laughs> so Peter good. Excellent. And, and also the kids stealing the car and like and all that kind of and thinking it's the car amazing. stolen. All those are real stories. And it's so funny how clever you have to be as a screenwriter to put these things together into something co- not only coherent and cohesive, but also really funny. Like it makes a lot of sense in, in the context of everything. And we we forgot to mention, and it's worth mentioning with John Goodman and Walter Sobchak, that John Milius was the inspiration for that character, yes. which and for people that don't know, and I think a lot of us that, that have, or a lot of you guys that have been with me for a long time know I have a real love for John Milius, just as not only the writer of Apocalypse Now and obviously Red Dawn, which is one of my very favorite movies, but just because he's apparently a fucking nut job. Yeah. And and he's basically this far right conservative dude in Hollywood. Doesn't give a fuck about like anything and anyone. As I've said, I think on the show in the past, I had like a prominent picture of him at my desk at IGN of him, like smoking a cigar and holding a rifle in he's his a hand. Gun nut. Yeah. He's like a total gun nut. That was like his, that was like his glamour, not his glamour shot, but like a shot that I guess his agent would give to people and stuff like that, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> and like, it was such a great inspiration for me as a writer and just this guy that just really understood things. And apparently the Coen brothers befriended John Milius and like, were familiar with him. I don't remember what their 1992 movie was before Fargo. I can't remember the name of it. Hold on. But apparently John Milius was somehow like they somehow became familiar with him and became friends with him. And then they wrote this character based on John Milius. And there's some conjecture that John Milius might have actually played this role at some point, which would have I don't know if it would have worked. I don't know that. John. I don't know anything about John Milius as an actor. I don't know what his chops are. No, I don't think he is one. So I don't know that that would have worked very well. But so I'm glad that they were at least able to take the inspiration and and give it to a, you know, fuse it into an actor that could do it proper. Well, you know what? What I didn't know, Kyle, I saw pictures of John Milius from probably the mid 90s. He I mean, they modeled Walter visually. They modeled Walter on John. I mean, he looks exactly like him from the from the mirrored shades to the flat top haircut to the style of beard, which John Goodman wanted another beard. And they're like, no, you need like, apparently the Coen brothers like, no, you need the chin strap beard. You, this is, and he looked side by side. They look almost exactly identical. It's even the, not, not even just the, even the weight, the body type, the stance, sort of the attitude to the head tilts of the head, everything. I mean, it imbi- John Goodman embodied John Milius for this role. It's amazing. Yeah. And apparently John Milius, yeah. Like Dagan said, is a bit of a loose cannon and, Apparently pretty obsessive with Vietnam. I mean, he wrote Apocalypse Now. So apparently all of this kind a part of all this kind of stuff, I think, like they were making fun of John Millius. I think John Millius was in on the joke. I don't think they were doing it. It was probably quite a compliment to him, actually. But apparently John Millius is one of those guys that like tried to tie everything back to like Vietnam and all this, (laughs) which is like. But the joke, I don't think John Millius fought in Vietnam either, but the joke with. With that, of course, with Walter is that he ends up, you know, the dude finally blows him up, basically being like, you were not even in Vietnam, Walter, and stuff like that. He was like, it turns out he was like a, what do you call it, a conscientious objector objector or whatever, yeah. Which is... Which is amazing. You find that out later in the film. I didn't watch my friends die face down in the muck. (laughs) In the muck. So... Yeah, so that's Steve Buscemi as Donnie Karabatsis. And and again, Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi are kind of the triumvirate 
of comedy in the movie. But obviously, there are other great characters as well. We have to talk about David Huddleston's character, Jeffrey Lebowski. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Huddleston died in 2016, but he has a pretty prestigious acting career going all the way back to the 60s. And, you know, he basically plays this this kind of faux millionaire also named Jeff Lebowski. So remember, the dude is Jeff Lebowski. This guy is also named Jeff Lebowski. And so in the beginning of the movie, these goons basically go after the dude thinking that he's actually the old millionaire. And then they're so stupid that they they realize, like, isn't this guy supposed to be rich? And they're like in some shitty apartment. And <laughs> by the way, though, I didn't write those two guys down, the blonde guy and the Asian guy that are like the two henchmen. Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Those guys are great. Wu As- and uh, I'm not sure the blonde thug has a name. But the, the, the Asian one's name is Wu, right? Because they actually say it in the right, film. Right, right. Yeah, they're great. So, yeah, Je- I like the character of, of Jeffrey Lebowski a lot. I think that, like, he's the necessary kind of grounding agent, like, a not a straight man, but just he's not trying to make anyone laugh in this movie. Even, like, it's just by Good his point. absurdity, like, how absurd he is when you find out that he's just kind of full of shit. But he talks about, like, how I achieved, too, and, like you know, like, all these kinds of things. When, when, what does he say? Like, when some Chinaman took my legs in Korea, <laughs> it's like, really? The Chinaman is not the issue, dude. And that whole that whole scene is very theatrical right. with the fireplace blazing and the, and the music playing <laughs> in the background, which I remember watching that scene for the first time and thinking the music was actually part of the score, but then realizing he's playing that music mm-hmm. in his office <laughs> to add to the drama. Right. It's so good. It's so great. <laughs> So, yeah, do you have any anything to say about this Jeffrey Lebowski character thing? And so David, the David Big Huddleston? Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. That's who the movie's named after. Which I think you could argue the Big Lebowski is the other Lebowski, but supposedly it's named after the Dave Huddleston character of the Big Lebowski. No, he's just this millionaire philanthropist, but it doesn't it turn out, do they say it or do they say it in not so many words, that he actually inherited the fortune from because he's a widower? Yeah, Maud, who's his, who we'll talk about, who's his daughter, basically says that, like, she's in charge of the money. Right. And that she's, like, giving him, like, a, an allowance. An allowance type right. of thing. So, he, yeah, he's just sort of a he's sort of a fake, but, you know, playing himself to be up, you know, this this important socialite baron, whatever you want to call him. But, he you know, he looks the part. It's a, He's such an interesting actor. I read a lot about the actor, David Huddleston. I didn't know... First of all, I didn't really – I thought he was a lot older than he really was. And I think he passed away eventually in 2016. So he lived – you know, he he, he, he was he was still going and he still had a career. Brilliant character actor apparently and was very involved not only on the big screen but also on a lot of TV series, especially through the 60s and 70s. So that was really interesting to know because I didn't know that actor. I, I know him from this film. But he's so, he's so good in this film. He, he, he is that, that foil to all the comedy. He's the straight man. And he's ultra straight, you know, how serious he is. And I love the contrast between the two Lebowskis, how different they are. Mind if I do it, Jay? (laughs) By the way, we have to just talk about the inherent comedy. Like, I don't think they ever really go into it. I could be wrong, but like, why are they all calling this guy the dude as if it's just the accepted thing? Like, everyone calls him that. No one doesn't call him dude or the dude. The bartender at the bowling alley calls him that. The other bowlers call him that. His landlord calls him that. Obviously, his buddies call him that. But when they insist on calling him Mr. Lebowski, he's like, I'm the dude. I'm the dude. Like, he's really taken aback by that. Right. It's so strange. He's offended by it. It's so strange. But apparently, Jeff Dad was the same way. Like, that's really what they called him. You know? So that's... That really existed. (laughs) It's so So strange. It's so strange. Now, I would argue that my favorite character in the entire movie is Brant, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman, as I said earlier, died in 2014, age 46. uh, Drug overdose, I think. 
uh, you know, far too young, yeah. a, a, an incredibly talented actor with an incredible range who was incredibly proud of this role. If you read interviews with him, which is so cool, like he really embraced that he was Brant to a lot of people. And even though he's like such a sophisticated and such a well-respected, I think, Academy Award winning actor that he still took this role in stride and like really enjoyed and loved it and, and loved the movie for what it was, which I was really happy to read because you could imagine that Philip Seymour Hoffman with all the amazing roles he did, especially after that, he would be like well, fucking Big Lebowski. Who gives a shit about the Big Lebowski? Yeah, I was in like so all these amazing, the you know, these amazing dramas and all this kind of stuff. But he's Lebowski's kind of like assistant or attache. And I just absolutely adore this character from a physical comedy standpoint, especially there's just, if you just watch him, he takes his role as this man, this kind of fake millionaire's man's assistant so seriously, over the top serious. And I just chuckle every time he's on on the scene and how natural the role seemed to come to this guy. And there's just a few really funny shots of him. Like when they finally when there's a part where the dude is kind of avoiding the Big Lebowski and avoiding Brant. And then they finally find him and he gets in the car or whatever. And Branch is sitting there next to the Lebowski and he's just like sitting straight up and just like really serious. It's just really funny. There's a lot of really subtle physical comedy with this role that I think goes a little bit underappreciated with some people. In addition to some just overtly funny things, he says, you know, yeah. uh, her life is in your hands, dude. Uh, Mr. Lebowski asked me to repeat that. He's like staring right at him because her, because her, the dude's like, oh, don't say that, man. He's like, Mr. Lebowski asked me to repeat that. Her life is in your hands. He is such a funny character. He's such an understated character, you know, very indicative of like Philip Seymour Hoffman as a character actor. He was really quite a genius. And yeah, just so Brand is so uptight. He's so tightly wound and proper. He's such a he's such a contrast to especially he's such a contrast to Jeff Bridges's you know Lebowski, Big Lebowski. I mean, he's just and you know I fell in love with Philip Seymour Hoffman Call when he played Lester Bangs, the rock critic, in one of my favorite movies, in Almost Famous. But that was the cool thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman. He really immersed himself in roles, even if they were bit parts or secondary characters, even when he wasn't in lead roles. He he's always he always brings it. He was one of those character actors where you really felt like he was you you saw it on the screen, you saw it in the frames. Like he was bringing 120% of himself to the film. And you know, it just he always left he, he it was always memorable. It didn't matter how small the part was. And yeah, it, this movie really proved that he had some comedic chops as well. His timing, as you said, and it's very understated comedy. It's not bang, bang, I'm making jokes comedy. It's very, very understated. And a lot of it has to do with how he plays off the other characters too, which is really difficult. Um, and just, yeah, just unbelievable. The, you know, such a loss, Philip. So he was really one of the greats. Yeah, he was. He would have been, I really feel like that was incredibly sad when he died. It was just it was unexpected, I guess. I guess maybe he did struggle a lot with his addictions with and stuff. With addiction problems, yeah. But, you know, I, I wasn't very aware of that. Julianne Moore plays Maud Lebowski, who is the big Lebowski's daughter. She's great in this, too. She's obviously a very famous and full ranged actress. And she's kind of like, like the matriarch or whatever the family, the living matriarch of the family and the source of the family's wealth with the uh, the Lebowski Foundation and the little Lebowski Urban Achievers. And, all. and, and, and proud of them, we are, as she says. <laughs> I'm proud of all of them. We are. <laughs> But uh, I love her character. I was talking to Dagan yesterday when we were just kind of reminiscing about it in preparation for this episode where I was saying the scene where she's introduced, where she's painting the on the big canvas and she's like suspended from the air and just like, like, you know, waving her arms with paintbrushes in them or whatever. It's like such a funny scene. She's just so strange and she talks 
just like you would expect a socialite to talk. She sounds like she's European or something, but she's obviously not. How do you feel about this character? Oh, she's she's hilarious. She's one of those characters where, you know, it's like this avant-garde artist. You know, she's very bohemian, but you you really it's odd, but you get it. You get what the character is making fun of. And apparently, I didn't realize this, partially based on Yoko Ono, which you could you could get. And Julianne Moore apparently like kind of created her own, you know, self-important half British accent for the role. And actually the Coen brothers were saying it was amazing because she, not only did she create that sort of dialect of English, but she stuck to it. She created it and stuck to it and didn't, didn't waver from it for all throughout all her scenes in the whole film. So that was really cool because I think initially they wanted her to have a British accent or something, but she said, let said, let me do this other thing. That's a little more put on and sort of, you know, self-important and arrogant almost, you know, and that that whole thing with her in the studio and her paintings and her artwork and sort of, you know, the whole feminist angle and sort of when her first her first conversations with the dude, you know, trying to really trying to make him feel uncomfortable and asking him, like putting him on the spot and asking him if he likes sex and all that kind of stuff. Really, really hilarious. Coitus. Coitus. You mean coitus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's great. And and all, we're going to talk about Tara Reid, who's Bunny Lebowski next. But really, Tara Reid's really not in the movie at all. She's only in the movie in the very beginning and in the very end, essentially. Julianne Moore, it's interesting when I was I was kind of just writing everything down and thinking about it. She's really the only female in the entire movie of like any consequence at all. One of the nihilists is a female. But I thought that that was interesting, too. This is a very male dominated movie. And it's a very good point. It's just interesting. You don't really realize it doesn't matter. It it doesn't mean anything at all, actually, to the the quality of the movie. But it is interesting that Julianne Moore, amongst these very strong, this is a strong cast of male actors. And she just, I'm not saying a female actress can't hold their own with a male actor, but it must have been pretty overwhelming to be Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi. It's like Philip Seymour Hoffman is a pretty stellar cast. And so I really think it says a lot about Julianne Moore's performance that anyone even talks about her because she's not especially important to the comedy, but the scenes in which she is in are just so understated in their humor that I, I really enjoyed her performance in this. Oh, she's so good in it. Tara Reed, as I said, played Bunny Lebowski. Now, Bunny Lebowski is kind of the young trophy wife of the big Lebowski of David Hutchinson, uh, of Huddleston's rather character. And this is really her first major role in anything, which I didn't realize. Now, I famously had a massive crush on Tara Reed. Uh, specifically from American Pie, which I saw before I saw this. So American Pie came out in 1999. In fact, it was just its 20th anniversary. That's like a really oh, important wow. movie to me. I love American Pie it's and I love American Pie 2 as well. And we'll definitely cover those at some point. Those are like my generation's teen movies, like really, really special movies. And that's when I fell in love with her. She was just I was absolutely enamored with Tara Reid. But in this movie, she, again, is the kind of the flight, flighty and deceitful trophy wife that's kind of setting it seems like she's setting a situation up to steal money and so she disappears and everyone thinks she's kidnapped and she's really kind of in on this conspiracy but you don't really see her again until in the beginning or at the end you see her but what do you think about this character Tara? it's funny that they kind of found her like she she fits she works for me yeah it is weird because when you you consider her a little more of a commercial type almost almost like a tv caliber actress compared to this other like stellar cast of character you know either either movie stars or you know straight up character actors so she always stood this stood out in that regard she also seems a little besides being one of the only females in the film which made her stand out 
She also brings a more contemporary flavor. The other characters almost feel like they're stuck in a different era. I think especially because the Walters and the Donnies and the dudes and everything, they're kind of stuck in their little, you know, there's no concern with being modern. There's no concern with fashion there. You know, dude, the dude has a beat up car. He has a beat up old apartment. They're playing bowling, which harkens back to an earlier time. The Tara Reed, the bunny character feels a little more of that of the late 90s era where the other characters feel like they're a little bit time warpy. That if, if, if I'm making sense sure. with that description. Absolutely. So that was, and that was one of the, you know, that was one of the, the big things that made her stand out. And also she seems a lot younger than the other characters too, which is great to play up the angle of the trophy wife to this old, you know, this old millionaire. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. One of the great Philip Seymour Hoffman like lines is actually the laugh after she says so that. So good. He has his hands clenched. Yeah. In front of him, but he's all, you know, he's all hunched up. We love, tight. he says something like, oh, we, you know, he says something about how they all love Bunny about it. It's like, it's so, yeah, she she works. She's not in it very much, but she works. And I guess that, you know, this kind of was her platform into getting into American Pie, which is cool because we all very much enjoy Yeah, that's American a great Pie. point. John Turturro plays Jesus. Now, this isn't a really major character. In fact, he's only in two scenes, which I didn't even realize until I was reading about that. But Jesus is basically this just bowling rival of theirs who really is inconsequential to the story entirely, basically just there for the humor. He's like a, a bowling partner with this guy. There's like old white or there's like older white guy named Liam. Liam. There's just a great scene where they're cleaning the ball, like their bowling balls. It's just like really funny stuff. And in Random fact, shit. he was apparently I was reading about this. He was apparently a little disappointed that he wasn't in the movie more and has been really busting the Coen brothers balls to try to do something with that character. And apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. And apparently they are. They have basically I don't know if the Coen Brothers are writing it or what's going on, but there's going to be some sort of series about Jesus. Oh, I think that's a mistake. I think so, too. Oh, that scares the hell out of me. Uh, yeah, John Satoru apparently has been had this long running thing with them about, like, why haven't we done more with Jesus? But I think that that is a mistake, too, because, like, it, he's just so random and totally useless to the movie's plot. Yeah. he If you removed his two scenes, it wouldn't even matter. But he is one of the most memorable oh, characters. God. And they wrote that part for him. Right. As as bit as it is that, you know, and that also speaks to the, the thoughtfulness of the Coen brothers in their writing, because they're all they're actually brilliant writers. And they write their You know, they they stand out, especially in Hollywood today, because they write their own stories. You know, it's very much like a Quentin Tarantino. There's not too many of them, man. They either adapt, they, they're either adapting, you know, other, you know, people's screenplays that other people wrote or existing novels or whatever. They write their own stories and they wrote this part for John Totoro and they waited for him because apparently John Totoro was doing, had done in the late 80s, they did, he did some kind of stage play, like an off-Broadway play where he played, now John Totoro being famously Italian, the Totoro's being of Long Island, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Long Island's own. Actually... Uh, what is her name? What is Tony's sister's name in The Sopranos? I know the actress, the one with it's the Rolling Ada, Stones. It's Ada Totoro. That's oh, just oh, that, John oh, Totoro. Oh, that's, that's John Totoro's sister. Oh, life. I didn't know that. Yes, I don't think I knew John her Totoro's name. Sister. She's the one with the Rolling Stones uh, tattoo on her Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What is Janice? Janice. Right. Janice. That's John Totoro's sister. Janice, in life. of course. Who could forget? Um, but yeah, so they and he played a, you know, apparently, I don't know if it was a Puerto Rican character. He played some kind of Latino character in this play and they were like, he, that works so well we have to write a part for him and eventually they landed through all their films they landed on a part that would be perfect for him and they wrote it for him and it's so memorable and he again like he is kind of a foil to the main character he's sort of an enemy of the main characters but that that rivalry doesn't play into the story at all. It's no, just, it's, it's just a it's just a sidetrack. It's so weird like the, there's a great shot when Jesus is like walking up to them 
And like, it, there's just a shot of the three of them, Walter, d- the dude and Donnie, where they're all just like looking. It's just such a great shot. The camera's panning, I think, right to left. And that's his they, introduction, right? Yeah. And they're just looking at him like if you look at each of their faces, they're all like all have a different perplexed look on their face. <laughs> and they play Hotel California. Right. A Spanish a version Spanish of Hotel version of, California. Yeah. You're right. When he's bowling, he has the purple bowling ball and the hairnet. And he's licking the bowling ball like yeah, he does it's a such a great. Tongue. I actually, re- I actually rewound that because Aaron was in the other room like doing something. And I'm like, you have to see this scene of him licking the she bowling ball. She never saw that. I don't, I don't think so. I'm like, it's just such. I'm it's like, classic. it's so yeah, it's, it's so, re- so classic. I'd like to think that he, you know, again because the Coen Brothers again are so by the book with their scripts. That was probably written into it too. But I'd like to think that that was just a shot that he did on his own. Wow, that what? is amazing that they want to do something with that character. I can't see the Coen Brothers doing that. They seem too sophisticated. They seem to know. They would know better than to do something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a mistake, too, but I was surprised to read about that. Again, you take the mystique out of the character. It's it's great the way it is. We don't need to know anymore. Yeah, and he's a convicted, apparently convicted pedophile. Yeah, pe- right? or a pederast. And, they, and I love when they're telling the story and then you just hear Donnie being like, what's a pederast? Uh, what's a pederast, Walter? And, and it, it's just like very casual. And he's like, shut the fuck up, Donnie. Like, <laughs> now, Walter's always telling Donnie to shut the fuck up, but it's probably the most understated shut the fuck up in the entire movie. Because it's like they're not even showing them. They're showing like him going door to door telling everyone he's a registered sex, or like registering as a sex offender or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's just like, what's a pederast, Walter? He's like, shut the fuck up, Donnie. Eight year olds, dude. <laughs> now there's like, you know, on IMDb, you know how you can go into like the goofs part of IMDb and like see the goofs. Yeah. One of the goofs apparently with that actor is that that wasn't apparently a law or something in 1991 to have to go door to door. So oh. like that was like some I'm like that's a that's a little bit of who cares? You know, that, right. that's who a know goo- that? like, who gives a shit? So, yeah, I, I love that role. And finally, the last character I want to talk about is Sam Elliott as the stranger. Now, Sam Elliott is kind of like the narrator in a way uh, of the movie and you only see him a couple of times there's a really great scene of him at the bar you know you know he's asking for like sarsaparilla or whatever at the at the bowling alley bar (laughs) and he's just it's just he's so weird what do you think the point of that like why is he in this movie that's like it's so strange because i actually think he's i mean sam elliott out of all of these guys is, is a big time you know actor yeah with some crazy chops and uh oh God, i found so it good. so it's must be such a compliment to the coen brothers for him to be involved and and so dry and especially that intro when he's just he's talking about the dude or whatever and he's like sometimes there's a man sometimes there's a man <laughs> like he's stumbling on his yeah, line yeah almost. it's awesome it's so so what do you make about this sam elliott character? well you know it's funny that's really interesting that you say that because apparently sam elliott was really confused about why he was in this movie and the coen brothers laugh about that like he he would literally go up to them and be like, guys, what what the hell am I doing here? And they would and literally and he would be like, not that I mind. It's great being here. But like, what am I supposed to be doing? And like they really didn't have an answer for it. They just felt inherently they wanted his voice. They wanted his, they really wanted to employ Sam Elliott's distinctive voice, which makes sense for the narration. But they also wanted to have a scene where where the dude would interact with him, which, of course, they they wrote into the into the film. And you know what? It is odd, but that film, that scene works so well. The exchange works so well. It's so natural. And it's kind of cool to see that sort of iconic, cool, calm, and collected cowboy character interacting with the dude and actually, indeed, complimenting him. It's like, I like your style, dude. You know, that whole thing. And there's such a warmth to Sam Elliott. It's really neat. And it's, it comes in at a time where the dude is getting really flustered He's getting really upset about the whole thing. Things aren't working out. So he kind of comes in as this character to kind of, he's kind of 
talking to the dude, you know, and trying to make him feel better. And, you know, the whole thing about what is that, some Eastern thing? He's like, far from it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and he's got that. Sam Elliott, he's so interesting because that, I I love Sam Elliott. I think he's wonderful. And he's one of those character actors that brings such such a unique flavor that no other character could bring. And Sam Elliott has this thing where he's smiling with his eyes. You know, he has, he oftentimes in his parts, like he does in this movie, he has the mustache that covers his whole mouth. But you could still see that he's smiling. And a lot of it is that glimmer in his eyes that it's just one of those things that's really hard to track. But it's there. You know, he, he brings such an authenticity and such a warmth. And I love that. And I, I kind of love the fact that you can't really describe what that what that's all about. And even the Coen brothers couldn't. They wrote it. But that it just works. It's just almost like an instinctual thing. Like, I don't know what this is, but it's going to work. And it does. Even, and the fact that even Sam Elliott was confused just makes it even more charming. Yeah, it's great. It's a great story. And yeah, it's funny. It's just funny how this this movie has a lot of component parts that don't or shouldn't maybe make much sense, but they just all do. And I don't know that the movie would work. We might, might not know any better, like we were saying about the Mel Gibson thing before. We might not know any better. Maybe the movie would even be better somehow or something. But this particular permutation of people seems to be so necessary to the whole the way the whole movie functions. And without him... I don't know. Like he's got, like you said, that distinct gravelly Western Americana voice. Yes. And oh yeah, I, I think he's great. You can't copy it. Now, if Mel Gibson was in the part, he would do the Mel Gibson eye dart. Right. Right. That he does so often in the Patriot. Yeah, do it for me. We, now, this is an audio podcast. I don't know, so. how to, I don't know if I could do it. He's, yeah. yeah, the, you, yeah. <laughs> it's it's got to be in the moment. I love that that oop, I hit the mic. I love that that bothers you so much too. Like you bring that up like all the time. That, I feel like he found that technique around the time they were filming the Patriot, and he just did it way too much in the movie. It actually worked. How do we not do one about the dis- Patriot? What do we do? I don't know. We have to do the Patriot. Aim small, miss small. <laughs> consider them linked. I consider this movie in the Patriot link. <laughs> and the last, if we raise a levy. <laughs> So yeah, you're right. Well, yeah, because he does it in like signs and stuff too. Everything around that era. That era. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because he's definitely over doing Mel Gibson overacting in signs like you wouldn't oh, believe. So and I fucking love signs. So oh, I'm not. Such I'm not a good movie. I'm not making fun of that. The Village and Signs, by the way, definitely the best M Night movies. And you can oh eat God, shit. You're crazy with the Village. You're crazy with the Village. And by the way, we talked about how I saw the Village with you in the theater, and you and we your did. wife, and your wife fucking predicted it in the very beginning. She really did. fucking obnoxious. <laughs> Dig. Now, I want to talk to you about L. A. as a character. Oh, nice. So the movie takes place, as we know, in Los Angeles. And I live in Los Angeles County. I technically live in Santa Monica, which is much better than L.A. But <laughs> I feel like L.A. is a is a character here. And I feel like L.A. specifically in 1991 is a character here. And now, again, if you read the IMDb goofs and you go into it, like there's cars that don't belong there because it, you know they're too new and shit. I don't give a fuck about any of that. Yeah. This movie really captures L.A. And... It captures what I like about L.A. and it captures what I hate about L.A. It, it, it's it's blown out. It's pastelli, palm trees everywhere. I feel like it's a little bit oversaturated, which is incredibly Los Angeles, not only from a film perspective, but just from living there. Like you can't see fucking anything because the sun is so bright. Yes. You need to have like five pairs of sunglasses on. So I really and, and you were talked about the nostalgic angle of the bowling alley, the bowling alley really being stuck in the 70s in terms of its design. So I really feel like. There's a nostalgic element inherently to Los Angeles, like from post-war, you know, late 40s, early 50s, like the Mad Men era. Like when they go, we talked about it on our Mad Men episode. It's so powerful when they go to Southern California, when they go to Palm Springs and they go to L.A. and all that kind of stuff, because there's something so new about it at that time. But by the time we see L.A. 
in the 90s, it's really quite run down. It's it's really quite it's still the same. I mean, L.A. looks exactly the way it looks in Big Lebowski still looks like it still looks like that. It really does. Like there's a there's a scene where there's a really prominent Del Taco as they're pulling out of the bowling alley or whatever. And I'm like, that Del Taco looks just like all the Del Tacos today. Like it looks exactly the same. Nothing's changed. So what do you think about that character? You lived in Los Angeles for a little while. So, so, and I've lived there for, you know, almost three years now. So what did, what do you mean? And I've traveled to LA so many times and I really hated going to LA and I've kind of warmed up to it just a little bit, but what do you make about LA as kind of a protagonist as well? Because it's the setting and I think it's really important to the movie. I love that. And I'm so nostalgic for, for especially early nineties era LA. Now I, it's, it's interesting that you say that Kyle, because I always felt like I knew LA even before I lived there for a little while in the you know in 2000 i lived there so right after this movie but i always felt like i knew la because of skateboarding because of seeing la so often not only in skateboard magazines but i grew up in the vhs era of skateboard videos which were you know it was probably 70 percent la and 30 percent san francisco almost all california growing up because that was before the east coast skateboarding scene and internationally and Spain and all that became in France and all those things became a scene. So skateboarding was LA and I knew it. We knew it and me and my friends knew it from the videos and from the magazines. And it does, LA does have a very specific aesthetic and a lot of it is due not only to the architecture, which I would argue the architecture is also a big thing with mission style architecture and all that stuff, especially things you don't see in other parts of the country, especially, but the lighting, especially the natural lighting and the, and that haziness and that smog and everything like that, that the way the, the, the way the light reflects and reflect, you know, refracts and reflects off the smog and the way the light hits and that intense sunshine. So there is a very specific aesthetic and I know, you know, the cinematographer of this film, Roger Deakins, famous cinematographer, one of the, one of the best, one of the best ever, one of the high, most highly lauded cinematographers probably to ever live. He was very specific about capturing that, capturing a very distinctive, capturing a very distinctive LA flavor in the film. And it just feels right. And it feels like the perfect setting for, for this to take place because, you know, again, it revolves around, you know, it revolves around a pornographer. It revolves around, you know, this, slacker you know stone you know pothead that lives in la the whole la flavor you could even see bowling associated with that oddly enough you know everything sort of dovetails and fits in really nicely together but i love the aesthetic of the you know that that sort of la almost deserty you know vibe to it you know and also you know things like just going in and out burger and stuff like that you know that it's very it has a very west coast has a very distinctive LA flavor and you know being set you know they also allude to the time period as far as like being that desert stormy type time period too so not only the place but also the time right not I mean desert storm for me famously was when I became cognizant of like politics and history and all that me too actually and I was older than you yeah I I I think I've talked about it on this show maybe on other shows but I remember just pouring over desert storm maps and stuff in Newsday which is Long Island's newspaper with dad and stuff that was how I became aware of that you know when I was seven or whatever eight so, yeah, I, you know, I think that one of the other things is that the movie, a lot of the movie takes place at night. And I also think that there's an mm. I think that there's a specific aesthetic of L.A. at night, too. That's very special to me. I usually don't even leave my house until it's nighttime because it's so fucking hot. So I feel like th- that one scene with the nihilists when they're fighting the nihilists at the end and, you know, and that's when Donnie dies. We we see them in this Los Angeles night that I also feel like is very distinct. It reminds me a lot, actually of like back to the future in the parking lot, which I also think is in Southern California, Mm. that mall where it's like 
there it just feels a certain way and so even if you can't see the sun and even if it doesn't you can't really identify the smog or see the blown out nature of what los angeles looks like during the day yeah it, it felt it still felt like la even at night that's a really great point it does have that you could almost feel the temperature just by looking at the image you know it's you know it's nighttime but it's still it's a little a little cooler than it was during the day it almost has that sort of desert cadence to it you know where it cools off to, at night type of thing which we were talking about that earlier which la has a little bit more than you know pennsylvania it's still it, it was 90 degrees say it's probably still 87 degrees outside yeah it's like la it's not quite like san francisco where it really turns like from like 80 degrees and during the day sometimes to like 40 degrees at That's night a huge swing like really and the swings are wild i lived in san francisco for 10 years and and you still don't really ever get used to it you you just always have to be prepared that if you're going to go to like Dolores Park to go smoke weed with your friends at three in the afternoon, you better bring a fucking jacket <laughs> because uh, it's not going to be nice for much longer when the fog rolls in and all of this. Dang, I'm glad you brought up the cinematography because there's some amazing shots in this movie, specifically in the movie theater. or I'm sorry, in the bowling alley, rather specifically with those shots of the bowling ball, like where the camera's inside the bowling ball. And there's also really amazing dream sequences that are very avant garde oh, and very interesting. So I'm curious if you can talk to me a little bit more about that. Do you know anything about the bowling sh- ball shot? If that's like, would they embed a camera into the bowling ball or is that no. some sort of digital thing? No, they actually did it practically, but apparently they did it with almost the picture of the camera on a spit that rolled down. So the camera was sort of put in the middle of a pole that was then on wheels on either side. Picture the camera being on the center of the right, axle. Right, right. And then they would roll it down. They said the challenge with that was trying to mimic the speed and the spin of the bowling ball. But eventually they did get it. Now, the thumb hole, I think, was inserted. That was a digital effect to make the camera look like it was right, in, right, right. In, in, the, in one of the it's funny you, the thumb hole. It's funny you say that, too, because I don't know that they quite nailed it. It seemed like it was too slow. It seemed like it, instead of it being like a perfect sphere, right, like a bowling ball, it seemed like it was like almost like a rectangle, like where it it kind of swung too much in one side and then swung too fast on the other axis. Like it was taken too... T- oh, so it wasn't even. Right. Like, it, it's, it doesn't... I think if people watch it, they'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it doesn't... It, yeah, it feels like it's not... It doesn't feel quite right to me. So that's I why I was curious how they did it. I, I didn't... I mean, maybe it's silly to think that they maybe... Especially in that era, the cameras might not have... High-quality cameras might not have even been small enough to put into the bowling ball. But I was wondering if they just had some sort of sphere that they rolled with like a small camera. That's a great point. And now you could put a high def uh, GoPro in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then they could have really done it. You could really do it. But that's interesting. That's really interesting that you said that that resonated with you. The timing resonated with you. That's pretty sophisticated that you realize that, you know, like I think about animating a bowling ball, I would probably not animate it with an even timing because that's not interesting. You want to exaggerate it. So So maybe that's why they did it intentionally. Maybe. I mean, and maybe that's why it never bothered me. You know. Yeah, because if you can if you picture like a if you picture like a two by four, that would be bolted into something that you can spin like a pinwheel. It it and then you put it on an axis like that, like walking kind of like saw or not SARS. What's what's the uh, what's the acronym of the interstellar robot? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Was it was it Sam? No, SARS. Uh, S- something like that. You know, you know how I'm talking. about. Yeah, of course. But it's kind of like that. You know, when he spins like a jack. Yeah, it's almost like that where it's not quite oh even God, because the that. Y axis is of a different length than the X axis. So it comes off. I don't know. It, it, maybe that's just me being a little too specific, but that's interesting. Yeah. But what about, the, what about the dream sequences? I, I feel like these are really powerful and really interesting. And it plays up what I think is one of the really great parts of the Big Lebowski that I'm so glad I remembered to say because I, I would have been really regretful if I didn't, which is the fucking soundtrack. Oh, the music is so good. 
I mean, really just a bonkers soundtrack. Just so, so great. So, yeah. What about these dream sequences? They're so bizarre. And they're all and a lot of them are like bowling centric, which is so funny. Everything is just so it's centered around bowling. I, and I'm not making fun of that. I love bowling. I think bowling's fun. Oh, bowling's as awesome. I, I love it. Never gets old. No, I'm terrible. Uh, I think I bowled a 93 the last time I bowled, which is horrible. Listen, bowling's still a thing. Even through all the computers and smartphones and Twitters and Facebook and Instagrams and all these other things that we do, especially video games, bowling is still a thing. That says a lot. You know, I, I sometimes I think about that when I take the kids bowling or we go bowling as a family or whatever. It's just like, wow, this is still a thing even after this is what I grew up with. And it's still a thing. Kind of neat. Yeah, it's a great know? it's a great game. I think it's just a fun, accessible game and one that accommodates like all skill levels. Like our our cousin, I think, bowled a 300. Who did? Junior. Did he? I thought he did, yeah. Uh, you could be right. I, I don't and know. my friend Christian, who is the guitarist of my band, I think bowled two 300s. That's amazing. So, and, Uncle Mike, bowled a, and Uncle Mike bowled a 300. I want to say he did. Or maybe he just missed like one of the turkeys or something. Yeah, he got close, super close or something. But yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Junior bowled a 300. You might be right. Because he, he was a really bowl. talented bowler. He really liked bowling. He yeah. bowled all through high school, I think. Right, yeah. He was on like teams and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, high school. Yeah, team. I think he could have bowled in college, but I, I don't think he opted to go to college. So, yeah, I could be wrong about that. Our family, Junior, family slacking. Family do listen uh, to this podcast, so you guys can always let us know. But I'm pretty sure that that's true. But yeah, I really, it's such a great game. And it, it does have this weird, I've always been bothered by it a little bit. It has kind of this trashy association i don't know like it, it's really i think associated maybe in my own mind maybe it's my own bias but kind of like associated with white trash a little bit yeah which is weird because it never i wonder when that started i bet that started in the 70s because previous to that that was like a very wholesome 50s and 60s like neighbors on the block would be on a bowling team and that's what they would do on a friday or saturday night like all the adults would go out bowling on the bowling team that was like a thing to do so i wonder when that i i i wagered a I, w- I would wager that 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 whole mentality kind of took place in the 70s. But even mom, when it, I was growing up in the late 70s, early 80s to mid 80s, mom was on bowling teams and stuff like that. That's what she did. Yeah. And, and friends, I, a lot of the housewives and stuff. Right. And it's a great game. And, and I guess my experience, we used to go to the Sayville Lanes. I remember. And which is right next to Ground Round. And I used to go there with dad a lot. I got I don't want to say I got serious about bowling. because That's not true. But I liked to really bowl when I was like a younger kid. And I was pretty good. And uh at that time, I was way better when I was like 10 than yeah. I am now, for sure. Right. And it's interesting because I never got you. You have that association of white trash, right? Kind of with bowling. But when I'm in the bowling alley, I look around and you don't really get that vibe from the clientele. In my experience, I've never gotten the vibe from the clientele. What I get the vibe from is the establishment itself. And I think that that might be where it comes mm. from. These bowling alleys were built in the post-war period and they've probably never been renovated. Right. Except for the floors. Obviously, they want to keep, take care of those and stuff. But even some of these, if you look at some of the bowling alleys, like I, I went to a bowling alley in Seattle with my buddy like a couple of years ago. And like you could see that some of these things are just all dinged up. And like, yeah, there are, play, there are alleys that like real bowlers like will not touch and all that kind of stuff. Like they kind of put like the, the me's of the world on, you know, lane one. Like you don't want to bowl on the edges, apparently, because the, the that's like where they start to kind of con- go concave and shit oh, like that. That's interesting. Really interesting that. stuff. So, I you know, but I think a lot of that has to do with the establishments just kind of, kind of being run down. And I'm not sure that like running a bowling alley is really a lucrative affair. And so you don't really have money to put back into the entire. Right. So the carpets are from like 1980 and Absolutely. all. You know? But I like that. Me too. I li- and there's still bowling alleys like that. Those kitschier ones that are just they're just kind of stringing along that have been there for 40 or 50 years. But now they have all the new ones, too, like the big mega bowling alleys, the rock and bowl. Have you been to any of these? New no, ones? no, no. Richmond has quite a few. We have a few here in in our area, in the King of Prussia area. But. You know, so they have both both types. But, you know, bowling is perfect for this movie. And, of course, I won't put my own commentary in on this. But, you know, bowling scene as a 
more of a pastime than a sport, but certainly one of those one of those physical activities that you would construe as not demanding a great deal of athleticism. You could be overweight and be a bowler type thing. You could be a slacker or a stoner and be right. a bowler. It's Definitely. not football. It's not baseball. It's not soccer. There's actually a great shot of a guy that it's funny in watching, you know, we were talking about the lines being memorable, but also the sh- specific shots being so memorable. And there's a great shot of this obese black guy bowling in the Big Lebowski and how he kind of takes a knee as he's watching yeah. the ball go down or whatever. And it's like, it's true. Like, yeah, he's a big dude. He probably wouldn't be able to play almost anything else, but he seems to be a very effective bowler. I love that. And yeah, so there's a lot of iconic shots there, too. But I think bowling is just a really great game. It's a game that we actually live right near a bowling alley in Santa Monica. I don't know why we never go. But so fun. So fun. I should. I, I would be fun. That would probably be. I'm I'm really becoming a hermit more and more as I get older. And that would be a fun thing to just go join a bowling league or something and just play. I think that would be super fun. They have they have one at work. I I mean, I can't. The thing with the problem with me is I'm not going to, you know, go bowling at seven at night and get home, you know, back because my commute's so long. I'm not going to get home at 12 o'clock just to bowl get home at midnight but it would be fun in my younger years I, maybe i would have done it wouldn't have bothered me to get home at midnight but yeah but you know what kyle also initially apparently they were going to center this story on softball oh i don't think i knew that which is kind of interesting but they fi- they figured bowling would actually be a better fit because you know it's a it's a great forum for just sitting bullshitting with your friends between turns and you know kind of uh encouraging the inane dialogue and all that kind of stuff it's, it's a it's a it's a much better fit than something with softball which requires a lot more running around and being in different places at different times and stuff like that right exactly yeah i think it i think it works so perfectly and it certainly makes you want to bowl and you're right i think there's just a nostalgic feel to bowling generally i don't know if that's just a piece of americana or if that's like everywhere else in the world too mm, it's, I don't, it's like bowling i don't know the history of bowling like is bowling american or is it European? I always thought it was, but that's a great question. Duck pin bowling. When I lived in New England, we didn't even really have real bowling alleys. I don't know if this is like true everywhere, but where I lived, like people played duck pin bowling, which is a totally different way of playing. Very I different. fucking hate duck pin bowling. It sucks. <gasps> and uh, you have it, to set up your own pins. They had. Yeah, they didn't have automatic. They had p- other people do it. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a thing. It's funny. Like, I don't I never grew up in that era. You might not have ever grew up in the era either. But in the 50s and 60s, that was happening in real bowling alleys. People were literally thing. setting shit up themselves, which Dude, is fucking a, crazy. That's amazing. You know how annoying that must have been? Horrifyingly annoying that must have been to do. And the dickheads that were probably throwing balls down the lane that while you were doing it. That would never happen with my friends. Those people would have been dead. Oh, yeah. That, well, yeah. I mean, well, I remember going to Connecticut to see you when I was in high school and we got kicked out of a bowling alley. Yeah. Well, my friend PJ, I was probably partially responsible. We'll say 50-50. We invented the game of trying to hit the pit. It didn't count unless you hit the pins on a fly. <laughs> yeah, like literally throwing it you had down. To throw the, but the ball had to hit the pin on a fly or it didn't count. So you get like the six pound orange balls. So we got kicked out of a lot of yeah. bowling alleys. Yeah, I was I was with you on one of those. I don't think I ever hit the pin on a fly, but P, I remember PJ getting so close that it would bounce right before the head pin. Like it would, it would be like an inch short. It would be a boom, boom. And the people would be, I mean, I, I mean, that's such a, that is such a degenerate thing to do because oh like it, it, you could destroy these expensive oh, we floors. So, we were so stupid. Yeah. They're very silly thing to do, but, but funny. I, I have very vivid memories of, of getting kicked out of that bowling alley in Connecticut. In Connecticut. You. Yeah. With you and your buddies. Eugene and Eugene, uh, who is the best. <laughs> Eugene was fucking out of his mind. Gene, PJ and you got kicked out. Yeah. It was me. You, I think Joe was there. Joe was there, but I don't think Joe and I and Dan got kicked out. Oh, yeah. It was me and PJ and Gene that got kicked out. We were spared. Yeah. Why did I get kicked out? I have no idea. (laughs) Then we all left. Yeah. I I did get kicked out with PJ. PJ. Yeah. Me, PJ and Gene. And then we went to like (laughs) we went to like IHOP or something after that. (laughs) I used to, you know, it reminds me, man. I I used to I've said this before, but 
I mean, this is ancillary to our conversation, but I used to feel so cool hanging out with you because you're 11 years older than me. So it was, it was, it was like a big deal for me to be able to hang out with you, you know? And I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know that I would have been so cool, like with younger people around. Oh, you would have And your, your friends were cool about it too. Like if I, like if. I was friends with someone and like, oh, my brother, little brother, who's fucking 11 years younger than us is going to come out with us tonight. Right. But everyone was cool. Even when I go to Philadelphia, like we told the cheeseburger story on the roof, like I was fucking bombed with with you and your friends. Like when I was like, what, 17 years old or something. Right, right, right. But I was like part of the pack when I was with you guys. And I always really appreciated that. No one one ever made me feel like a trivial, you know, member of the team, as it were. No, I have pretty cool friends. You know what's weird about that, though, too, Kyle? None of my friends, with the exception of John, my best friend, John, growing up, had younger brothers. So it's not like they really knew how to be older brothers. They were they were all the youngest or the only child. Or had yeah, or yeah, they were all the youngest or they had older or they had older Yeah, that's right. Or they were the only child. Yeah. Right. So every single to the to every single one. So it's it's amazing that they were so cool about everything. They were. Like whether we were going night swimming or whether we were going to the mall to play at the arcade, I'd go skate with you and I mean, I was going skating with you when I was like literally like in third and fourth grade. And yes. this is like this was like pretty wild. It really was like Dagan was out of high school and I was going and skating with his friends when I was like literally nine. Dagan, what Dagan would do is give me an old pair of his jeans and like cut them up for me. <laughs> and like a T like an, I remember you giving me a cool Adidas T-shirt to wear shirt, once. The red one. yeah, yeah. With the blue logo, I think. On yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And we would like go and I guess I guess that was like your rule. I at least had to look the part. <laughs> that was my dream for you to skateboard, especially after I got hurt. And I knew it was like off to art school and it was going to be over for me. I tried to keep it alive. I mean, I did skate. You know, I was never very talented at it. But I, you know, when I was in like Erin has told you the story that she always identifies me as a skater in college because yeah. I did skate everywhere. In right, college. right. I did. Used to, yeah, you got around by the skateboard. Yeah, I would just skate on the street and skate on the sidewalks. And I could like ollie up. a, You know, I could ollie and I like, never could do a kickflip or anything like that. Right, right. It was like a mode of transportation for me. I would, sure. You know, but and I used to skate around Philadelphia. I remember, I, you know skating you know at fdr and skating with oh my god with p i remember you were working or whatever one night and uh pj and i were just skating around you know I, but i would i would really feel like a fish out of water because ultimately we would go to like you know especially on the island when pj would hold me hostage for a day or two at a time <laughs> we would go to these places like these abandoned parking lots and all this kind of stuff and that was when i i didn't find that kind of stuff fun because i liked it as a mode of transportation so i would basically just skate around while everyone else was trying to right do you know, tricks do tricks and perfect whatever they were trying to do yeah absolutely dig the other thing that I, I do, I we mentioned them earlier, but I do want to talk about the nihilists who are kind of like the antagonists <laughs> of course. just because they're so funny. And like I said earlier, you know, flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers is one of them. And it's so funny to see him pop up. I, was, I really would love to know more about like what his intents were, intentions were like. He's in the Back to the Future trilogy and everything. He's a yeah, that's right. And he's in other stuff, too. Like he's a real actor. And I wonder, like, what? How did he find his way into all this stuff? By the time the Big Lebowski came out, the Chili Peppers were huge. Oh, they were huge. That was that was filmed right after One Hot Minute came out. So, which is their third major album. They always had Mother's Milk and all that stuff. But you know, okay. you think about Blood Sex Sugar, Sugar uh, Blood Sex Sugar Magic and all uh, all of those uh, albums leading up to uh, One Hot Minute and then Californication and stuff. He was in this between One Hot Minute and Californication, and I've always been really fascinated by that. I'm like, where did you like? How do you even get the time off from being in your world touring being rock band? Yeah, it's true. They didn't like fleas like, you know, Anthony Kiedis and flea are like the irreplaceable parts of that band. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great point, you know, because what what the guitarist John Frusciante kind of started with them, then left. 
and then the dude from Jane's Addiction played with them for a little while. Then he came back. Then okay. he left again. So, but right. at the same time, all the other characters and the or the members, rather, I should say, were all consistent. So, I've always been really curious about that. Is that like is that a priority of his? Does he just know the right people? He's like a really Flea. Really looks very unique and distinct, and so he works. He does. Have he a works. Look. You know. He does. Yeah, he totally does. It's interesting. I didn't know his name. His name is Michael Peter Balzari. Oh, I, I don't think I, I had that. no idea. Australian American musician and actor. So there it is. I wonder what else he was in. I'm going to take a look real quick. But it is interesting that he's one of the, uh, and it's so noticeable that it's him. You know, it like almost takes you out of the movie a little bit, not in a bad way, but it's like, oh, that's Flea. There's Flea. Exactly. Yeah, it's different than his role in Back to the Future because he's not really a known. The Chili Peppers existed at that time, but he's not a known quantity at that time. It seemed like he might have been able to go either way, maybe with his career at that time, because the Chili Peppers weren't really a known quantity until Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So, right, exactly. which I think came out in '91. So, you know, after Back to the Future was already done. So, Dig, I guess we can begin to wrap things up. I wanted to kind of go and consult with the audience again, if I might. Please, please, just to get into a few of these other things that that he talked or the, the audience rather wants to talk about. Tyler Garrett wrote in and said, "Hey, Dig and Colin, my question is a two-parter." Firstly, have you ever read or heard the theory that Donnie is a figment of Walter's imagination and that any other character interaction with Donnie is them playing along? And secondly, what's your take on this theory? I have heard this. So what do you think? I never really gave it too much thought. I mean, we really have to now we have to go back and think this through. You know, but if Donnie was a figment of the imagination, then why would they have the funeral scene at the end? Yeah, it doesn't it, that it, this theory doesn't make any sense to me. There's actually the one of my favorite scenes is when the you know the dude is ignoring Brant's calls on like the old school like box cell you know yeah. cellular phone, and Donnie phone. says like you know phone drinking dude and and the dude says thank you Donnie as he's walking away why would he say that like how would he know that's that that was being too. said so that that theory doesn't really it's an interesting theory but it doesn't really make any sense and yeah, I don't like, I don't know that that's true yeah I have to explore that one a little more but yeah for me it doesn't really hold water as I think about it currently. Like it would be pretty cool if that was true in the sense that if you went and watched the film and you realize that Jeff Bridges never acknowledges or looks at Donnie or something like that. Right. But that's not true. Like Donnie's in the back of the seat, backseat of the car eating in and out. He's right, he on the bowling that. team. It's just, it, but it does seem like he's the third member of a bowling team that everyone else's bowling teams are two people. So there is some there is something interesting about that, like Liam and Jesus, for instance. I don't know who the third member of their team is. Oh, right. That's true. They're a they're a duo, right? What is this bullshit? Bullshit. There's no bowling on Saturday. Bullshit. I don't care. <laughs> it's true, right? As Sm- Smokey's not a part of their team, is he? Oh, um, yeah. No, I don't think so. Smokey's on like another. He's, that's a whole like, other uh, thing. Who's yeah? Marketed. Marketed. <laughs> You're entering a world of pain. <laughs> You're entering a world of pain. He pulls out a piece. And also, you know what? Also, think about this. The dude and Walter react to as Donnie's having his heart attack right. after the scuffle. Yeah, I don't really so I don't really I don't buy that. Water that. I got to explore that more, though. Let me see about that. It's interesting. But it's interesting. yeah, it doesn't really that doesn't really add up. Austin Ashworth wrote into us. Hey, Austin. Said, Colin, I remember on the Back to the Future episode, you mentioned your confusion about the movie's ability to sprout super uh, or super fervent fandom. I'd love to hear your take on the fandom surrounding The Big Lebowski. I love the movie, but I'm still a little puzzled by the degree so many people worship this movie in particular. They really do. What is it about movies like Back to the Future and The Big Lebowski that cause people to latch on so strongly? I actually agree with you that it makes more sense to be a fan of the, of the Back to the Future trilogy than it does like a hardcore, you know, cosplaying fan or whatever the case might be uh, of Marty than it would be of the dude because 
there's really only one film here while there are three Back to the Future films plus like some ancillary games or whatever that that play into the continuity. True. But it is one of those cult movies that does have a following. You always uh, you know, when I was in college, there's always a dude at a, at a Halloween party. Right. There was always people quoting the Big Lebowski. And, you know, mind if I do a J was a line we would always say in college. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I guess it's a little bit of a contradiction. I, I don't know exactly what why well, I know that the movie's excellent, but it is a little weird. I always find anyone's fixation on one piece of fiction, an isolated piece of fiction as a little strange. Like I love Red Dawn. Yes. I love Red Dawn. The original film. Yeah. The 1984 original film. Love it. Love it. Love it. I would never cosplay That's as it. a Wolverine. No? I would never even know. Like, Not well, even in the Arctic camouflage. No, I don't think so. I just something. think that it's like it's it's not there's not enough there. It, it's 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 a fantastic film that I really love. Yeah. But I don't know how much there is to celebrate there. You know, I guess sometimes I, I say I say funny, I say avenge me a lot, which I which I admit, avenge me. which comes from Red Dawn. In fact, when we did our t- Chris and I did our Titanfall two, let's play. All I wrote in the description was avenge me, <laughs> which I probably probably no one understood. That's great. I love that. But yeah, how do you feel about that, Dagan? Like, what is it about movies like this that, well, that I think, catch people? Well, apparently this, the fans, the hardcore fans of The Big Lebowski call themselves Achievers, which which is kind of cute. And apparently they have meetups and apparently they've been doing this for years. And apparently sometimes here and there, depending on where the meetups are, Jeff, because this is a this is an international thing, apparently. Jeff Bridges has been known to show up to these things which is kind of neat that is awesome he's really cool i want to talk about him more before we close out but sure. i like well, let's compare this to back to the future as we were doing you know you have a franchise a very popular pop culture franchise spanning you know over not only over three movies but video games and so on and so forth other other forms of media i think what's cool about something like the big lebowski is that the characters are f- fleshed out enough and are we, we love them enough and they're real enough and authentic enough for us to want to cosplay them and for us to want to be fans of something. And apparently there's even a religion around the big, like a quote unquote religion around the Big Lebowski. I like sort of that that one movie is powerful enough, especially in characters. I'm all about character. I'm fascinated with character is that the characters are strong enough to want to to want to immerse yourself in that world just based on a single film. I think that's really neat. Plus, I think it's actually funnier in a way because there's left more there's more left to the imagination. Like I actually personally think it would be really funny to cosplay as the original Red Dawn. Like let's say in the Arctic camouflage with the gun with the white tape around it and right. stuff like that. I or maybe you have a crate full of food, whatever it is that you could that you could call up for the movie because I think that's funny. Because I think that it's almost like well, does this deserve to be cosplayed? But I'm doing it anyway. I think there's a humor to that that I, that really speaks to me. I mean, and maybe that's just the kind of having a wry sense of humor. But I want to I want to cosplay as one of the Nicaraguan paratroopers. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Still don't understand why they're invading the United States. The idea of cosplay for comedy is becoming more and more on my radar now that we saw. You know, I don't know when by the time this goes up. I don't know how relevant Bagel Boss will be anymore, but apparently this guy freaked out and went basically postal on the island on Long, on Long Island in a bagel store in a Bagel Boss bagel store as one does on Long Island <laughs> as one as one does as one does not surprising no what I like I told you when I was making you laugh I'm like the second I saw that he was in a bagel store I'm like this is definitely Long Island before he even started opening his mouth oh it's so apparent <laughs> it's so obvious yeah but a, some genius on Twitter commented with finding all of the guy's clothing items on Amazon 
and making a little graphic of it and saying, I'm all ready for Halloween. Basically saying he's going to go as the bagel boss. Right. I mean, that's just... It's brilliant. That's hilarious. But his 15 minutes are going to be so quick by, by the time October rolls around, that will already be... You guys may not know what we're talking about now. Yeah, no, that's how quickly that, that got, this episode. As the Sugar Ray, this, the third Sugar Ray album was called 1459, which I always loved. And uh, that... Of course, is he, we are on the brink of his fourteen fifty nine. His fifteen minutes are all, almost up. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I, didn't love, know, yeah, I didn't sugar, know that's what it was about. Yeah, Sugar Ray's record. Yeah, their third record was called fourteen fifty nine, which I thought was so cool. Was it fourteen colon? Yeah, fifty nine. Oh, because because when their second album came out with Fly and all that, and they like really hit mainstream success. Everyone was like, "Well, their fifty minutes of fame will be up," so they made fun of it with their next record. That's and brilliant. It yeah. That's actually brilliant. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Dig, we have another one from Nick Yushinsky. Hey, Nick. He wrote in and said, White Russians have become one of my favorite cocktails strictly because of this film. Colin and Dagan, any love for the signature drink? Keep up the great work. Yeah, we went through a period of course, when we first started watching this movie in the late 90s. We were all about White Russians for about a year. So what is it? Vodka, half and half and Kahlua? Yeah, that's right. It yeah. sounds a little disgusting. It's actually quite tasty. Yeah. And there was actually different plays of like the milk based cocktail um there was like the nuts and berries which had basically what was it like berry flavored liqueur in there as well helene was really into those for a while so there was a but after a while the milk is really i'm really as you guys is it milk or is it half and half or it doesn't matter oh you know what i guess if it's whole milk or half and half it wouldn't be too different right right they're both really creamy but maybe it is half and half. Well, because it one, I think he buys half and half when he goes to Ralph's. It in the is beginning, half and half. I but think. he then uses at Maud's house. He uses like powdered milk. That's gross. That's so gross. That's so funny. Yeah, it is. He's just he's just so desperate to have his white Russian. Right. But yeah, the some the the cream like the milk based cocktails kind of turn the idea of that kind of turns my stomach now. I have a weird thing with that. Like any kind of cream based thing. Like I don't like it really. I don't know if you know this about me, Kyle. Like milk in tea really grosses me out. Oh, interesting. Gross. Tea grosses me out. So Yeah, I know. I'd rather just drink milk. (laughs) I'll take a milk and uh, tea with milk. Hold the tea. Finally, Dagan, Owen Wallace wrote into us. What's up, Owen? Said, would either of you be brave enough to tell a cab or Uber driver that you hate the Eagles, knowing full well it could get you ejected from the ride (laughs) just as unceremoniously as the dude was? I wouldn't do it in Malibu. That, that, that dry yeah don't do it in malibu <laughs> by the way we, we got to talk there's just a few characters that we should talk about as we wrap up oh absolutely because a lot of them center on the malibu section and around there and also i think it's well no i guess it all is in malibu jackie treehorn is an amazing character he's I like a pornographer yeah it's an amazing name the log jamming is like the fake porn <laughs> that he makes with like one of the nihilists and <laughs> bunny lebowski and yeah so that character is great that the malibu police chief that throws the coffee mug at the dude's head is like that's one of the great scenes i was fucking pissing my pants during that the noise that it makes (laughs) makes when it hits his head (laughs) yeah it's like so it's like it's like the kickball sound we always make fun of it's really it's really unexpected that when you first see that that scene yeah because what does he say it's like so there's some reaction like some snarky react like quick reaction that the dude has to something like i just throws his coffee cup (laughs) at his head the best the absolute best. And uh, since he brought up the Eagles, I wanted to bring up that cab driver, the, the black cab driver that kicks him out of the cab is just so great. Oh, like everybody in this movie. Unbelievable. He just like pull because I guess our younger audience might not know what it's like to ride in a cab, but that's pretty authentic. <laughs> just, that really is actually <laughs> like cutting three lanes over because you're going somewhere they don't want to go oh or something God, like that. So fucking funny. hate cabs. I'm so nothing. I, 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 you don't want to celebrate anyone losing their jobs, obviously, but I have had so many bad interactions with cab drivers, specifically in San Francisco, that in it San brought Fran. me great glee when they basically ate complete shit with Uber, with Uber. 
good old San Francisco company destroying the entire San Francisco uh, taxi union. Maybe you should have, you know, taken credit cards, you fucking punks. Dude, I always kicked out of cards. Greg and I used to complain about it all the time. I, I got kicked out of cabs for all sorts of reasons, like not kicked out for doing anything wrong. Yeah. You get in the cab and be like, I, I only have a credit card. We're not we don't take credit. I'm get, I get in the cab and be like, I need to go to the sunset. We don't go to the sunset. <laughs> They just make their own rules. Yeah, up. it's just like it's like because they didn't want to pay the credit card transactions. But there was never an industry, I don't think, since probably the horse and buggy when when Ford came in and fucked that whole thing up. When he famously said, if I asked the consumer what they wanted, they would have wanted faster horses, which is one of the great <laughs> quotes in industry history. I love that quote. <laughs> that because, is brilliant. Because that's always the quote that when people say the customer is always right and, and that kind of thing. And people always bring that up being like Henry Ford has this great quote saying, like, if I asked my consumers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> So uh, that's genius. Yeah, it's total genius. genius. But I never since that I never took more glee in watching an industry just crumble, and an industry never crumbled so much because of its own people than that. Like than, yeah, they hurt themselves, dude. Because there was ways. no it, because it became it became retributive for a lot of people where it was like fuck cabs because everyone had five thousand stories like that bad experience. And so like even when you would like cabs started pulling up to people in like 2013, 2014, 2015 in San Francisco. Asking people like where like people that were clearly waiting for their Uber, like, where are you going? I'll take you there for ten dollars or be like, see ya. No, thanks. You know, I'd rather pay twice as much. You guys had your chance. I remember being getting out of Kaiser Permanente after I got my cancer removed from my face. Right. And got into a cab in the Richmond and which is uh, northeast, the northwestern part of San Francisco, just trying to go to the southwestern part of San Francisco, which is the sunset where I lived. And the guy wouldn't drive wouldn't drive me there and i remember getting in this huge screaming after them being like i just had surgery like on my face like can't you just bring me to where i wanted to go right 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 what did he say to that no he's like oh sorry man i like and i think he was one of the guys like don't talk to me like that blah 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 and i go fuck yourself and that guy's probably eating shit now on the side of the road because yeah it's like that really that cab experience in the big lebowski was so powerful in hindsight because it's like it's so true to true to experience like you just (laughs) I, i i was making i was texting you the other day when i was in uh an Uber and the guy was just talking on his phone, like ignoring me, which I'm totally fine with. I don't want to talk to anyone anyway. Yeah, I like that better. But it was funny because uh, <laughs> I texted you and I was like, this is such like a, this brings me back to New York City being in cabs when like the cab, you would really get into a cab. The cab driver doesn't say anything to you. You say where you want to go. The guy just starts driving and then he brings you there, pulls over, doesn't look behind you, doesn't say anything. You just give him the money. Get out. <laughs> like that's the only cab experience I can possibly that's tolerate clean, at this that's, point. That's clean. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't. And by the way, dude, there's a thing. And I, I should be clear. I don't want to. Uh, I'm going to be clear when I talk about Uber moving forward. I own Uber stock now. They went public. So so take everything I say about them with a grain of salt. But they they have this new option called like comfort or something that's like above Uber X, but below Uber Black. OK, where you can instruct the driver not to talk. Oh, and I took it, it just came out and I took it to LAX and it was wonderful. You get like uh, you get a little more leg room and all that kind of stuff. So a, a black SUV came up. The guy got out in a suit and opened the door for me. Oh, wow. And then we just he was just like he actually had a little bit of a joke. He got a little bit of a chuckle in the beginning. He's like, all right, we're going to uh, John Wayne Airport in Orange County. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he's and he's like, ah, and that was like the last time we talked. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And I paid like three dollars more. So it was totally worth it. You know, I didn't even know this existed. Yeah, this was like a new thing. This was really controversial with people because on Twitter, because folks were like, 
oh, you don't want to talk to these workers, these poor workers. And yeah, I'm like, no, not really. Like, to be perfectly honest with you, I get really annoyed when I get into these cars and these guys want to talk to me. You like, should have the choice. Yeah. Like Aaron always says, because Aaron doesn't we, we we got rid of Aaron's car. It's just way cheaper to not have it. And she takes an Uber when she goes to UCLA and back for her job. Yeah. And she because she's dressed as a nurse and she has like, you know, her stethoscope and all this kind of stuff. Imagine getting into an Uber every day. Yeah to and fro in that outfit and what that evokes out of the driver and the conversations you have to fucking endure because Hello, of that. Hello, nurse. You know what? Yeah, well, obviously Aaron's hot. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Where it's yeah, like I that do. just I causes do. conversation. And so to give her that option must be so relieving for people that have to like, I don't Uber enough anymore to really be put off that much when someone wants to talk to me because I only really take it to like my psychiatrist's office or to go to see Ramon or something. Yeah. But I used to take Ubers constantly. Right. And it really gets exhausting after a while to just constantly have to explain yourself to people. It's like, yeah. I just want to get, I just want to go to where I'm going. See, I wouldn't have the heart to tell them to stop. I would suffer. Oh, I've never it. told them to stop. I would suffer through it. I do suffer through it. But this gives Which you the option. Sucks. This gives you like a pull down option to basically say like silent ride. Yeah. That's different. I've never said to someone like, all right, enough already. And so they could see that when you get in. Right. Exactly. Okay. okay. No, I I have to be clear. I've never gotten into a ride. I've, I've grinned and bared it. There was one ride when I was going to see a friend of mine where this guy just kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. I just started ignoring him. And he said something kind of snarky like, oh, all right, I guess we're done talking. And I'm like, I wasn't really talking to you to begin with, dude. <laughs> Like I because I got in the car, I said something. He was like, hey, how are you doing today? And I'm like, ah, I'm not really having a great day today. You know, just trying to get to and fro going to see my buddy. And, you know, just I, I got some work to do on my phone or whatever. And he just talked for like 20 minutes and I just started ignoring him. <laughs> see, that's it. That actually be a little self-aware. I have a couple of things to do. I have mm-hmm. a little work to do on my phone. That was a hint to not talk to you. Right. Chris, and he didn't pick that up. No. And Chris has the genius idea. He, Chris just wears headphones at all times. That's actually either not that, earbuds, literal headphones. Could when you, is the, it rude? Would it be construed as rude? Because I haven't taken enough Ubers to get, pretend you're on the phone or actually just be on the phone. Like say, Aaron, I'm getting an Uber. Just be on the phone with me for five minutes. Can you get in and talk? Even if you're not talking a lot, like let's say you're having a conversation. Aaron just puts the phone down because you don't want to get into a situation where it's known that you're faking it. Right. So you want it to be a real Like call. Elaine in the back of the cab where she <laughs> pretends like she can't hear anything. <laughs> what? You want it to be a real call. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Right? There's all sorts of options. I, I I don't like the passive aggressive thing of like just pretending like you're busy or pretending like you're indisposed. I just want to have a it's a commercial transaction. Yeah, I'm not I don't go to fucking Vons and have a conversation with the te- with the uh, cashier about my day. I right. don't I don't right. I don't care about that person's day. They don't care about my day. We are having a commercial transaction. Right. And it's the same thing with these with people in Uber. I guess it's like supposed to be a little more personal, you know? Yeah, you're sharing. You're in a car with you're you in someone's too. car, but that's yeah. the market. Like, and I think I I feel so I feel so much better about myself because I was always secretly harboring this shit. I've been using Uber for like seven years, and I've always been harboring this. Like, oh god, like give me an option to just shut this off. Yeah, I think that's very smart. And they finally didn't. They just charge you a few more bucks for it. Okay, that's fine. As long as I get a good dividend on my stock, I don't care. That's Just do you whatever you got to do. That's, that's fine. That's your thing, baby. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, Dig, do you Please. have anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap up the conversation? No, I mean, I think we should mention, I always think this character is a very incidental character, but I always think the character of uh, Knox Harrington is hilarious. The the guy who's hanging out, the videographer, the, uh, what is it? The avant-garde videographer right. that's hanging out in Maud's studio. That's always, that's like cackling. Who the hell is this yeah. guy? <laughs> He's like cackling. <laughs> Everything down to like the most smallest insignificant character is just a bit of comedy genius. That's what makes this movie so special. And you know what, Kyle? We should also talk about You and I talked about this the other day. I always thought about, you know, I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. I really like their films. I like their body of work on the whole. 
and I love I love the fact that they're such brilliant writers, and I love especially their how they're so adept at writing dialogue because I think writing dialogue is a very special skill to have as a writer. But this movie has a lot more levity than their usual film. I don't tend to. I think they they specialize in black comedy and dark comedy. I would I would I would say in all in all fairness. I would argue that that's their specialty. And, you know, you think of movies, some of their other seminal movies like Fargo, for instance. But this movie just has a lot more levity and a lot more silliness and is a little less, I don't want to say mean-spirited. That might not be the right word because I'm very sensitive in general. So I could construe what I could construe as, you know, possibly mean-spirited may not be, in fact, mean-spirited. But th- this movie just has, it's just a lot more joyful. It has a lot more of a joyful resonance than most of their films. And it's just a lot of fun. Not that there's not dark moments, because there certainly are, but just really authentic characters and really authentic comedy and just really memorable and unforgettable moments. And it never gets old. And there's really no boring parts. There's no lulls in the timing or, you know, parts where it's dragging. I don't really recognize any of that. It's just like, not that it's like bang, 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 and it's, you know, this unsophisticated sort of, popcorn movie that's you know made to appeal to wide audiences this movie is very special in that it is sophisticated but it is also a lot of fun and really it, it this movie has to be on my top 10 even if i broke down all my favorites this movie would always land on my top 10 so much fun and also jeff just talking about jeff bridges the genius that jeff bridges is have you seen the movie there's a really great little movie that he did not too long ago a couple of years ago that i finally caught on amazon or something called or maybe it was on netflix for a little while it's called hell or high water he plays a Texas Ranger going after basically a couple of younger guys in Texas that are robbing banks. And it's just, he's just so good in it, dude. I don't even want to say more about Hell or High Water, but if you guys haven't seen this, a little indie movie where he had, you know, Jeff Bridges is a Texas Ranger, he has a partner, and then they're going after these, these, these criminals who, you know, have their own story. It's, you know, there's a lot of gray area with, with bad guys and good guys and stuff like that. But really, really brilliant. He's so good in immersing himself in a role and he has such a likability you know regardless if it's a more serious movie like hell or high water like really technically a drama which also has you know comedic moments just because it's jeff bridges and he knows how to pull off that appeal but i i just love him i, I mean everybody in the movie is great but he's special he's really special he's a special actor that guy right on right love on all right all right all right right on right on right on <laughs> Well, Dave, that's our conversation about The Big Lebowski. I think that that was a pretty thorough conversation. And Gene Siskel I think you hated my, this movie. You missed my joke. Oh, wait, sorry, I want you to it. think about it again. I don't want you to think about what I just said. Play this, say it again. We say did it. a thorough job talking about this. Thorough. <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> what did she say? It's good man and thorough. And thorough. <laughs> and thorough. He's a good man and thorough. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So yeah, Gene Siskel. Yeah, so Gene Siskel hated this movie apparently, and said that Kingpin was a better bowling. Oh my god, get the what? fuck I'm out sorry, of here! You out of your the, mind? I'm sorry. Gene Siskel is the most overrated person. R.I.P. R.I.P. I know he's. Yeah. I know. I know he's no longer with us. But come on, man, that guy's taste in movies was just not not good. No, and Ro- I think Roger Ebert really came to like it more than he did originally. I think he gave it a thumbs up originally, but I think that he. So I think that was a mixed review on their part. They might not even have been together at this part. That might have been the Cisco and or yeah, Ebert they and might Roper not have been moment. at that point. Yeah, I don't. I don't. It was Ebert and Roper, right? Yeah. So yeah, 
But I was reading that in his later days, I think when he was sick and was just doing a lot of writing and stuff like that and not really able to talk anymore, that he kind of came to consider it like a four star movie or whatever. Oh, like is that his, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't like this movie? It's, it's I, I've never met anyone who doesn't like this movie. No, it's um, it's unbelievable that anyone would be able to sit down and and, you know, not find it funny. It's one of those litmus test movies, I think, too, because I talked about how I've known people in the past that didn't like or understand why Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm were funny. And you have to be out of your fucking mind to think that. So, yeah, that's weird. like that's like I in hindsight, I never got along with those people ultimately because they have bad taste and I don't. I wonder what they do think is funny. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, yeah. obviously. <laughs> You, you can't account for t- bad taste, man. There's some people with just fucking bad taste That's out there. Bad. I, I, w- I would love to know if they didn't think S- Curb and Seinfeld were funny. What do they think is funny? They probably like Sonic. Those are probably the same people. There's probably the Venn diagram between people that don't like Seinfeld and like Sonic is probably a circle. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, that's right. Not the burger place. <laughs> Not the southern burger place. That's fantastic. Dagan, let's end with some of our closing okay. sections, both our yes. lightning round and then our dad jokes. That's right. I got the lightning round here in my notebook. I got a bookmarked with my post-it note. So lightning round versus mode. Big Lebowski edition. Let's do it. All right. We're going to we got to compare my answers to your answers. I already answered these and I'll circle and see which ones we got right and which ones we got, which ones we were off on. OK, let's see how many we answered the same. OK. The dude or Walter? The dude. The Jesus or Smokey? The Jesus. Smokey. <laughs> Who would pick Smokey in that situation? Maud or Bunny? Maud. Although Bunny. I mean, well, I'd, I'd, I'd actually like to be with either of those women. But uh, yeah, I'll take I'll take Bunny in that. Yeah, or Jim. Maud. In, oh, no. Maud's the better character. Bunny is the, the hotter character. Uh, well said. I'm not a I'm not really a sucker for blondes either. I went through this weird, weird phase where I was really into blondes. I'm a brunette guy. You know, is she naturally blonde. Tara Reed, I think yeah. so. Yeah, is I mean, she... I've never not seen her blonde, so I assume so. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Whether she's it. naturally blonde or not, I, know, I don't know, but she's always been blonde in my experience. Yeah. Okay. Kyle. Yeah. The Eagles or Credence? <laughs> I love the Eagles. The Eagles wouldn't hold up much hope for the Credence. <laughs> <laughs> my briefcase. Jackie Treehorn or the Nihilists? The Nihilists. Jackie Treehorn is the best name for a porn magnate ever. Yeah, and he's so weird. He's just in like one scene basically, and he like just yeah. Who dis- is that? Ben Gaza- Ben Gazzara that plays Jackie. I Treehorn? think so. Yeah. yeah, and he just like he just like walks away, and then like the dude tries to see what he wrote down on this like piece of paper, and he just wrote like drew a dick or something. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so weird. <laughs> Beer or a white Russian? Beer. Beer, especially in the bowling alley. I would oh, say. Oh, definitely. Bowling or mini golf? Oh, I like mini golf a lot. Me too. Mini golf is great. (sighs) I don't know. I think I'd go with bowling still. Yeah. You know why? Because mini golf has so many variables because it could be a shitty mini golf place or a good mini golf. There are some garbage mini golf places and there are some really fantastic mini golf places. And I love the people that I love both people that play mini golf really seriously. And I love the people that like destroy the ball in mini golf and it like the ball goes like four holes ahead. That's a that's a PJ move. Yeah, PJ. I was going to say that's basically PJ's move. (laughs) <laughs> he held me hostage more than a few times during a mini golf sessions. PJ Boswell, did he? Oh, definitely. Did he really? I don't remember ever playing mini golf with PJ. Isn't that weird? We had to have. Oh no, we play. I played mini golf with PJ. Oh, maybe we did. You remember that place By, in Patrick? Uh, well, it was on the service road of the LA. yeah Kaboom or whatever it was called, something like that. Yeah, yeah I know exactly a, what you're talking. Remember about. Remember that? Yeah, that's the place I think we played. We used to play there. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, it was like where the multiplex was. Yeah, right next door. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right next door, Brooklyn Multiplex. Uh, all right, Cowboys. Sam Elliott or John Wayne? John Wayne. Go yeah. John Wayne over yeah. Sam Elliott? John, I mean, John Wayne's like an iconic 
cowboy actor. Oh, it's John Wayne. I, right? I mean, oh, I love Sam Elliott. I'm not I'm not disrespecting Sam Elliott's more talented, you know, or mm, than mm. John Wayne was, I That's think. But John, good... come on, John Wayne is like a, as American as apple pie. He's an icon. Yeah. He's an icon. Please. Strike or spare? I mean, it's a trick question. Strike. I'll go with You strike. like strike. See, I like the spare because there's more glamour in it. But you get fewer points for it. It doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Fair enough. You like, you like the glamour. It's the aesthetic. Right. The glamour of getting the lower score. It's very shot. glamorous. It's very glamorous. It's very glamorous when you need two balls to knock all the pins down instead of one. I'm happy if I bowl in the triple digits. <laughs> if I get 101, I'm psyched. I never, you know, I understand the exponential like order of magnitude nature of bowling scores. I understand that that's the theory, right? Like, yeah. Because even with a turkey at the end, which is the three strikes in a row, it's only yeah. 130 raw points. But for you that. get right for 10 for 13 strikes is 130 points. Right. But a perfect score is 300. So you're building scores and like multipliers, basically. It's, yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. relatable to video game players. But I was always fascinated by that because it's really a game of consecutive strikes. That's how you get the that's how you score high points. If you get yeah. if you start throwing in spares or God forbid, like gutter balls and shit like that, then you're, you know, it's game over pretty early for you. Yeah. Perfect game is literally a perfect game. Right. There's no there's no missing anything. No. Yeah, you can't get you can't get twelve strikes in a spare. It's not a perfect game. Oh my god, can you imagine fucking it up in the very very last, last frame? frame? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's happened that's, many times. That's heartbreaking. Donnie or Brand? Brand. And is that no? There's more. No, that's it. That was it. That was ten. All right. So what? So, uh, okay, what do so we? Uh, what's we'll, our consensus? Well, strike and spare. We didn't. We didn't get the same. So I said Sam Elliott. Okay. Yeah. I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. We Eight got of ten. Eight out of ten, my friend. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. And what about some of our dad jokes? Oh, let's do the dad jokes. I'm running out already. Can you believe that? That's a shame. I mean, I have enough for the next couple. Then I gotta do a little more research for the dad jokes. That's my too friend. bad, man. That's a that's a real shame. You're gonna miss those. No, I'm gonna really miss. You're really them. gonna miss the dad jokes. <laughs> All right, my friend. Are you ready? God, it's down to the dregs as well. All right, which one am I gonna go with? Did I read that one last time? Okay, let me start at the bottom. I'll go, I'll, I'll clean up from the bottom up. Okay, you're really going to hate these. What did the buffalo say to his son when he dropped him off at school? Something about bison. That's right. right? Bison. Bison. Yeah. <laughs> you actually got it. I know. That's why I see what happens. I think that's the first one I've ever gotten. Very good. Hell, well done. I'm not sure I would have got that one. I'm not sure. Kyle, I bought some shoes from a drug dealer. I don't know what he laced them with, but I was tripping all day. <laughs> that sucks. My God. That sucks. The bison one was good. <laughs> Dig, that's all we have. That's it. For the Big Lebowski. Go watch this movie, guys, yeah. if you haven't seen it. It's you a must, do. must watch. Yeah, do it. Available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can go rent it as I did on Amazon, or you can buy it on Amazon digitally. I'm sure it's available in other places. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, quote-unquote, for free, but it might be on Netflix or something. I try to just throw... I guess it's kind of the, the benefit of having a little bit of disposable income. I, I try to buy things, even if they're like readily available you somewhere else. You try to else. support. Yeah, I want to support... You know, People support me. I, I would like to try to turn it around and support hey, others. Hey, right? I like that. That's good karma, my friend. Indeed. And tell the Cohen brothers we sent you. Tell them Large March sent you. <laughs> you want to be fucking horrified like I was as a kid. Probably the most horrifying scene of all time. That for was me. terrifying. It still scares me. And I, still... I was much older than you and I was still terrified. Yeah. I've, I want to feel like you and Dana like made me watch that scene or something like that too, which sounds about right. I saw that on the big screen. I was fucking terrified. Tell them Large March. <laughs> what was going on in the Pee Wee movies? So weird. That is a weird movie. 
And you know what's funny about that movie? That, that part didn't scare my kids. My kids still won't watch Jurassic Park, though. Which is so fun. We're going to do one on Jurassic Park. And it's so funny because I find Jurassic Park not scared. I never was scared of Jurassic Park. I don't know why. Me Dinosaurs either. never scared me. That's not scary. They're dead. They've been dead for 300 million right, years. Right, exactly. Yeah, the dinosaurs. Literally thing. 300 million years ago, they died. Like, are we really that scared it's of these things? not that scary. But imagine, oh, well, no. you know what? I'll say my dinosaur conjecture for the episode, but I always love about how the mythology of the dragon comes from these ignorant societies back in the day finding dinosaur bones. That's where it comes from. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Imagine if you were in ancient China in 1000 BCE and there's a river that exposed some geological strata in which these massive animal bones were sticking out that don't reflect anything in the natural world around you. Of course, you make a mythology about those creatures, right? And that had happened in two different places, both in Europe and in East Asia is pretty interesting to me. That is really interesting. Because you have like your European dragons, which are different than your oh, totally much cooler Chinese dragons, if Agreed. I do say so myself. Agreed. Eastern dragons are just cooler. Definitely. All right, let's get the fuck out of here. I think we're going to go watch Phantom Menace, although tonight we can. Although I, I really want you to watch Trailer Park Boys on Netflix. Oh, like really bad. I, but I re, we really do have to watch Phantom Menace, though. We'll, probably, we'll do that first and then we'll watch Trailer Park Boys. All right, that sounds good. As time allows. Oh, God. All right, here we go. Good night, sweet prince. Good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs> from what does he say? From uh, from Hill 385 or you know, like all these things on Vietnam about Vietnam when he's. What is, my God, it's so weird. That movie just everything boils down to that one scene with with the ash with Donnie's remains. You're just a fucking asshole. <laughs> you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. Yeah, you're just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> and can we just talk about Walt for a second? Walter what? is such a shill, like. He t- he comes across he you know purports himself as this blowhard and this tough guy, but he still he still takes care of his ex his ex wife's dog. It's a show dog <laughs> with fucking papers. With papers. <laughs> <laughs> Watching your ex wife's dog while she's on vacation with her husband or something like that. It's so weird. It is weird. Great great movie. Definitely go watch it. I hope you didn't get this far in without being familiar with it at least, but we'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support. Remember, go to patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand to throw us some love if you can, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Chris Adams, Carlos Algarit, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Adam Barnes, Justin Bearden, Martin Beck, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Blossford, Andrew Bonnell, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Bruce. Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Eric R. Brown, Jimmy Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Nick Calloway, Tom Cargill, Patrick Harper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, 
Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Philip Crone, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Mitchell Durkash, Zachary Douglas, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Liam Fagan, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Shane Hendrickson, Wide Henry, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Johnny Humphreys, Blake Israel, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Garrett Jaggard, Jimmy Jolicure, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Auntie Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Kenneth Kopnick, Joshua Koga, Andre Kozachka, Ron Kroskoff, Jackson Lostiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Duncan Leishman, Matthew Lenz, Jeffrey Leonard, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, David Mann, Peter Mark, Matt Martin, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Jordan Mouse, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Philip J. Melk, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Midling, Matthew Miller, Alex Moans, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Grayson Orr, Brian Ott, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Tipo Poplier, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Shero Kader Hamakarim, Andrew Ramos, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Daniel Rivas, Johnny Rosado, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholz, Toby Schutman, Glendon C. Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Daniel Strycharsk, Wesley Simmons, Ahmad Tamar, Will Vlander, Ben Thompson, Ren Todd, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Troy Walters, Connor Walton, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Josh Wire, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Hugo's Desk, Organic Produce, Jeff, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Madmock Media, Fabian, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Richter86, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Scott, Rainick, Donk2015, and Gavin.